This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Good morning everyone. Shalom Aleichem. Boker Tov. Boker Tov. Welcome to uh, our trip. I want to, uh, on behalf of uh, Avi Rokeach, my name is Daniel Gladstein, and uh, we look forward to having an amazing uh, couple days together, learning about the history of Spanish Jewry, of Jews in Amsterdam, in Portugal, and right off the bat, I want to present you with the following feeling that may even stir your heart because as traveling through this country, an air of curiosity and mystery should fill one's heart because uh, I assume most of the travelers here are, are of Ashkenazic descent, although not exclusively. Nevertheless, 300,000 Jews, according to the Abarbanel, were expelled in 1492. And it is very possible and very likely that many of us, if not most of us, have roots in this country. And if you're thinking to yourself, come on, I'm a thoroughbred Ashkenazi, I'm from Poland, Hungary, Russia, Romania, I refer you to the family of the Arach HaShulchan. Who remembers the name of the Arach HaShulchan? Rabbi Chiel Michal Epstein was uh, the great Paisik in Lithuania. Well, his son, the Tartamima, writes in his very interesting and very controversial work, Makar Baruch, that he writes that the family name Epstein was originally not Epstein, it was Benavisti, which was one of the most prestigious families of Spain that was expelled in 1492. Benavist, a well-known family of wealth and acclaim, and was one of the illustrious families exiled by Titus, by Titus, from Yushalayim. And let's begin the trip. Everybody must remember the following Pasuk. It's the Pasuk at the end of Sefer Oivadia. The Pasuk goes as follows. Vigolos hachel hazel levnei Yisrael. If you want to know about Jewish exile, Asher Kenanim. Now, where's Kenanim? Where is, where is that country? We think Kenanim is uh, Israel. Nope. Ad Sarfas. So we're sent to Kenanim, to Tsarfas, but Vigolos Yerushalayim. The most, the nobility, the royalty of the Jewish people, Asher Bisfarad, Yarshuas Are Hanegev. The Radak explains as follows Titus exiled the Jews of Jerusalem to Canaanim, which is Germany, to Tsarfas, which is France. But the royalty of Yerushalayim were specifically sent to Spain. The most prestigious Jews were sent to Spain. So I always think, you know, the Navi says, Ki Was that always true in Jewish history? What about during the Golas? No, during the Golas also. Because Spain was considered Tzion relocated. So the Rashba, the Ramban, the Rush, all lived in Spain. So it's like the Torah is emanating from Tzion because this is Golas Tzion. Now interestingly... The Baal Tartamima illustrates how the finest of Klaliso were exiled to Spain. So I'm gonna, we're going to go through a list of great Gedalei Yisrael, and when they signed off their letters, they considered themselves Golos Yerushalayim Asher Besfarad. So the first name I want to mention is Chizdai Ibn Shaprut. Chizdai Ibn Shaprut is of 10th century. He was a great statesman. He was a linguist. 
he is responsible for laying the foundations of what is known as the Golden Age of Spain. He wrote in the year 959, in a letter to the Khazar Kingdom, he writes, Mimeni chazdoi ben Yitzchak ben Ezra mibnei Golos Yerushalayim asher besvarad. So that means Chizdai ibn Shaprut, in the 10th century, recognized that he is a descendant of the Jews of Jerusalem here in Spain. The Rambam would sign off his letters. Mibnei Golos Yerushalayim asher Bisvarad. There's a Sefer Shvile Amuna of the Chachme Toledo. He would end off his letters. Mayor Ben Yitzchak Hachosid Mibnei Golos Yerushalayim Asher Bisvarad. The Smag in Mitzvah Loisase Kufyur Beis. He says, Veharachti Binyanim Elu Begolos Yerushalayim Asher Bisvarad. He writes that in 1235. So already from the 10th century, for hundreds of years, the Jews of Spain recognized they were the royalty of the Jewish people. Maharam al-Shakar, he writes in Seville, 1391, that he had a dream, and there was a Malach standing upon him. And the Malach tells him, Kumna Yehuda, get up! Maher Aleim in Ho'ir, get out of here! This is 1391, 1391 was the beginning of the forced conversions in Spain. Maher Aleim in Ho'ir, Ki Yishafeh Hashem Chamosai Al Golos Yerushalayim Asher Bisvarad. That means for 1500 years the heavens recognized that Spain was a location of the most prestigious families of Klal Yisrael. Now it's very interesting. The Baal Tartvima writes that the Benavisti family split into two. Some went to Germany and they stopped there. Others went to Turkey, Kushta, Salonika, Izmir. They retained the original name Benavisti because they felt they were far enough away from the Inquisition that they could maintain their Svardic name. But the f- part of the family remained in Germany. And they stopped at a place called Epstein. And they settled there because that was the first time they could rest their weary feet. And they were afraid to call themselves Benavisti because they were afraid of the tentacles of the Inquisition. So they wanted to change their name. They couldn't be labeled a Benavisti. I mean, if your name is Benavisti, then uh, you're pegged as a Sephardi right away. So they changed their name to Epstein. Writes the Makar Baruch, the Tartamima. He says, Chaval, Chaval, Chaval Ma'oid, that we did not retain the name Benavisti and we took on an Ashkenazi name. If only we would retain the prestigious name Benavisti so that we could recognize that we are from the family of David, Golos Yerushalayim Asher Besvarad. And I have to say that my grandfather's family settled in the city of Linchitz in Poland, that was the city of the Kliakar. And of all the cities in Poland, the Goyle Sefarad only settled in Linchitz. It was the only Polish city that was settled by Goyle Sefarad. So perhaps my family as well has roots over here. But you should know that as you're walking the streets, as you're riding the bus, according to even secular historians, notably Howard M. Sachar, he writes 80% of Spaniards today have Jewish blood. 80%. 80%. Not only that, 
Some even say that Francisco Franco himself had Jewish blood. And although he did give away uh, Jews to Hitler, he didn't always. And when asked about it, he said, if I would follow the uh, Nuremberg rules, I myself have to, would have to give myself in. So it's somewhat haunting to walk through this country, which is really soaked in Jewish blood, but recognizing that we have a lot of roots here, and even today, the effects of the Inquisition are still uh, in the air. We know it was not put to an end officially until the 19th century, and it still was in effect to some extent until 1960s. So I, I hope everybody enjoys the trip. Bezos Hashem, uh, looking forward to meeting everyone personally. And uh, we're headed to the show for Shachris. We're going to be davening in Mekoymois that Rishonim lived. You know, once we're on the topic, the Gemara tells us that someone who's Koyvea Makam Litfilasai, so when they pass away, they say, I Chassid, I Anav, they compliment the person for his humility that one is Koyvea Makam Litfilasai. What's the Indian of being Koyvea Makam Litfilasai? There's an amazing idea that when a person's is what a person is recognizing is that they're relying on the Kayach HaKadusha of their earlier Tfilah so that the Tfilah they're offering again now will be more effective. If a person davens in a different place every day, so then they're saying, my Tfilah is effective in and of itself. But when you stay in the same Makayim, you have a certain humility that you're relying on the Kayach HaKadusha of yesterday's Tfilah to propel today's tefillah. So we're relying on that. We're going to be davening in these cities where Rishonim lived, where the Rashba lived, where the Rush lived, whether Barcelona, whether Toledo. We're being Koyveya Makam Latfilasena. We're davening in the place where the Ma'ire Oilam were Mespalel. And even though we don't have Kvarim of these G'daylam, but nevertheless, we're Soymech on the tefillahs they offered over here. So wherever we may be, may all of our tefillahs be answered. Okay, good morning everyone. Hope everybody is enjoying. We're driving through the streets of Barcelona, literally in the footsteps of Rishonim. Who was the Rav in Barcelona? Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Adares. Rav Shlomo Ibn Adares, the Rashba. The Rashba was born in Barcelona in 1235. He passes away in Barcelona in 1310. He did not originally start off as a rabbi. He spent a number of years as a financier and he was called upon by the community in Barcelona to be their chief rabbi. Just to tell you a little bit about the eminence of the Rashba and his prowess in learning, I want to share with you the comments of the Baal Taratimima. I tell you, I was very startled when I saw this to the point where I didn't think I could say it over. I even asked the Shaila whether I'm allowed to say it over. I went to the Shvile Pinchas, Hagoin with Pinchas Friedman. I said, the way the Makar Baruch writes this, I don't think I'm allowed to say this. He said, say it, but say it with the following explanation. The Makar Baruch writes in Chilek Ravi Perk Lamates that there's a, a basic difference between the writings of the Rambam and the writings of the Rashba. The writings of the Rambam, you read them, and you're confronted with many questions. There are things that don't seem to be understandable. There seem to be many difficulties. And yet every time you learn a Rajbah, it's so clear. The argument, 
The logic is so crystal clear. There are no challenges. You can't ask anything on it. Why is that? Says the Makar Baruch. And he says it's because when the Rambam learned, he did not teach in a yeshiva. He learned. And therefore, there's room for question. But when the Rajba, everything the Rajba said, he said over in front of Talmidim. They challenged him. There was Pilpol Chaverim. And everything was sifted through with a fine-tooth comb. And I said to Rav Pinchas Friedman, how can we say about the Rambam? There are questions on it. The Rambam is the foundation of Psak. So he explained that what this means is as follows. When you read the Rambam, it seems like there are many questions. It appears that there are difficulties. Certainly there aren't. And the Rambam, everything the Rambam says is the backbone of Halacha. But the Rashba, it has the appearance, it has the feel of uh, clarity. Be it as it may, I want to share with you an interesting halacha. We know that pasakum is prohibited. One is not allowed to have the bread of a private Gentile baker. What about pas palter? What about the bread of a Gentile baker, a commercial baker? So that's permitted. But what about if Jewish bread is available? So there's a machlikis rush in the Rashba. The rush says if Jewish bread is available, even if you don't like it as much because it's stale, you have to eat the Jewish. So in other words, you have a choice between Kemach bread and Arnold's. The Arnold's, it stays fresh for three years. The Kemach, the Kemach, it stays fresh for... Uh, it can't be on video. So are you allowed to have... Arnold's bread if Kemach bread is available. The Rush says it's prohibited. The Rajba says as long as you like the Gentile bread better, it's, it's permitted. Comes the Torah and the Torah says, Loinira Kain Yushalmi. The opinion of the Rajba does not to be does not seem to be correct in light of the Yushalmi. Comes the Beis Yosef and the Beis Yosef says, How dare the Torah ask a question on the Rajba? Now, the Torah was no slouch. The Torah is the son of the Rush. The Torah is the, the author of the Balat Turim. He can't ask a question on the Rajbah? No, says the Beis Yosef. How dare the Torah ask a question on the Rajbah? That it doesn't seem to be correct from the Yushalmi? What, you don't think the Rajbah knew the Yushalmi? You don't think the Rajbah had an answer from the Yushalmi? You're not allowed to say about the Rajbah that there's a question on him from the Yushalmi. You can't ask questions on a Rashba, says the Beis Yosef, Maran Bet Yosef. He says, Man de nehirin shvile de rakia. Someone like the Rashba, that the byways of the heavens are open wide. You are not authorized to ask a question on him from a Yushalmi as if the Rashba was not familiar with the Yushalmi. So when we speak about the, the Rashba, we're speaking about the highest level of clarity of learning among the Rishonim. Now, a great controversy broke out here in Barcelona and in Spain in general. In Andalusia. Anybody know where Andalusia is? What is Andalusia? Southern Spain. Andalusia is a, a term for the region, the autonomous region of southern Spain. There was a man by the name of Abamori Hayarchi. Hayarchi means he came from Lunel. And there was a, a pretty prominent movement that people began to study philosophy 
here in Spain. And that was one of the main differences between Spain and France. In France, among the Balei HaToysvis, Rashi, Rabbi Tam, the Rihazakin, the Reb Shimon Mishans, there was no learning of philosophy. They had no interest, not in the disciplines and not in the sciences. Their interest was only in the Talmud Bavli. In, in, in Spain, they were much more broad-minded. And by the way, there was a, a very important reason for that, and that is because Spain was under the uh, control of the Muslims. And uh, surprising as it may sound, the Christian world was barbaric, unlearned, uneducated, illiterate. The Muslim world was sophisticated. They, ha- they were poets, they were mathematicians, they were philosophers, and it, it sounds backward, right? We always think of the Christian word, world as a more sophisticated, educated world. That switched about in the year 1500. In the year 1500, someone turned the lights out on the Muslims, and no one has opened it up yet. No one has turned it on yet. But uh, history switched on a dime, approximately in the year 1500. So people in Spain began learning philosophy to the point where Abamari Hayarchi sent a letter to the Rajba, to the Gadol Hadar, to put a cherem on the learning of philosophy. And if it would have just ended there, where people were studying philosophy... That would have been perhaps uh, tolerable. But Abamari Hayarchi of Lunel of Provence, uh, the Provencal Gedolim were very powerful. And there were Gedolim who began to give, give allegorical drushas. Rablevi ben Chaim, Rab Yaakov Anatoli. And they said the Torah is only parable. So Avraham Avinu is a mashal to Tsura, to finished product. And Sarah Yimenu was a mashal to Chaymer, to the raw material. And the 12 Shvatim represent the 12 constellations. Did you ever hear of something like that? The Urim Vitumim was not a supernatural item. The Urim Vitumim was a scientific object. It really was the astrolab. And the war of the four kings against the five kings. It was a war between the four elements. Water, fire, wind, earth versus the five senses. And everything that took place from Bereshus until Matan Torah was a mashal. And they even began to say the mitzvahs are a mashal. You don't have to wear tefillin. Tefillin is just a mashal to subjugate your heart and your mind. Baruch Hu. So the Rajba penned many tshuvahs. Tshuva taf yudalid, taf tesvav, taf tesayin, Tough Yud Zion. And the Rajba actually created a cherem that for 50 years he prohibited the study of philosophy. Now that means any discipline outside of Torah was forbidden to be studied with one exception, medicine. And the reason for that is they needed doctors. But the study of philosophy was prohibited until you reach the ripe old age of 25. You see, once you turn 25, you're already a Zakein Muflag. You're already eligible for Social Security. So at 25, you're considered mature enough to be able to learn philosophy. And, and also, uh, back then, most people did not necessarily even make it to that age. 
and the, the Rajva um, issued a cherem, and the cherem was not an indefinite cherem, it was only for 50 years, because the Rajva said the Chacham did not have the capacity to add a permanent Isser, and also, even at age 25, one had to be mamale kresoi shasu paiskim. One had to first fill up their mind and fill up their stomach with the learning of Shas and Paiskim. This was the Cherem of 1305. This is the famous Cherem that the Rajba issued here in Barcelona in the year 1305. Now you'll ask Cherem, does a Cherem mean anything? Do the rabbis have the capacity to enforce? Uh, you know, nowadays, if the Chachamim and the Rabbanim gather together to make a Cherem, people maybe wouldn't even blink. But you have to know, back in the day in Spain, the Chachamim had tremendous power. In Spain, the Rishonim gave capital punishment. Skila. You hear this? 700 years ago here in Spain, if someone rode a horse on Shabbos, the Chachamim gave capital punishment. In fact, the Rush writes that when he got to Spain, he couldn't believe that the Chachamim were giving death penalty. And the reason they were giving death penalty is the Chachamim said it's a Kiddush Hashem. Because how could it be that when people violate the law, the, the Spanish government had the capacity to take a life, the Torah is not just as important? The Rush said, you know, if it would be up to me, I would deal with people much more lenient. Let's say if somebody, heaven forbid, cursed Hashem, I would just recommend having the guy stick his tongue out and slicing off his tongue. That would be much more compassionate, and that would also ensure the person wouldn't do that again. I'm sure you could imagine why, right? So the Rush said, capital punishment, maybe he's not in favor of. He's more in favor of a much more lenient type of punishment. Okay, be it as a may, yes, back in the day, the, the uh, cherem did have a lot of force, did have a lot of meaning, and this cherem was uh, put on anybody who had learned philosophy, and the problem was, again, they were interpreting the Torah allegorically. Marv Rabbi we now fast forward 400 years to the year 1710. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Poloni, the primary disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, who learns that Avraham and Shara is a mashal, and Avraham is the tsura, the neshama, and Sarah is the guf. So what the Rajba put in Cherem became one of the fundamental tenets of Chasidus. So you'll ask, how could that be? Then seemingly this is a valid interpretation of the Torah. By the way, Rishonim learned that way. The Tzrar Hamar of Ram Saba also learns Avram and Sarah are a parable. But the answer is it all depends on the Hakolafi Hazman Vihais. In thirteen oh five, when the learning of philosophy led people not only to interpret the narrative of the Chumash as parable, but even the mitzvahs. So now it was jeopardizing the observance of Torah mitzvahs, then it was not the proper thing to do. Later on in history, then uh, where it was not in any way undermining observance, if anything it was inspiring greater study of Torah, so then it was permitted. But this was one of the famous edicts of the Rajba. You could read about it further in the Chuvas Rajba, Tuf Yud Dalid through Tuf Yud Zion. Sechusai Yagen Aleinu Amen. Thank you, Victor, for all of your insights. We're here in the streets of the ancient city of Barcelona. 
We're going to go down to the street of the Rashba of Shalom Ben Adaras. But here, very notably, we have a plaque for the donor of this particular shul. There's a big question. If you give money to a shul, are you allowed to put a plaque up? Or maybe it's better not to have a plaque. Maybe matan b'seser yich ba'af. Maybe better to give modestly. Many people, they like to give tzedakah, and they give it anonymously. Can we cross? Yeah, in a minute, you want to hear this. The Rashba writes, Reb Shlomo ben Adaras has a very famous responsa. He lived right there. That when you give money to synagogue, you're supposed to put your name on it. And we learn it from the Pasuk. And he saved them. And Chazal say, if Ruvain would have known that it would say his name, he would have done it with more energy. The Rashba is the source that you put your name when you give an Adava. So it's not a coincidence that right across the street from the Rashba, we have the uh, plaque for the Nadvan. And from here we learn a very important lesson. When you give tzedakah, you, you say your name, Davka, you're supposed to say your name. But I want to give anonymously. So give more anonymously. You could always give more anonymously. Okay, we're here in Barcelona. And we're going to speak a little bit more about the Rajba, Rav Shloima ben Aderes. says over here he was the rabbi from 1235 to 1310. There was another great rabbi here in Barcelona, Rav Aaron Halevi, the Ra'ah. You read the Shita Mikubetzes, he constantly quotes the Ra'ah, Ra'ah, one of the great Rishonim. They were co-rabbis here in Barcelona. Many people say the Ra'ah wrote Sefer HaChinuch. It's probably not true. The Ra'ah did not write the Sefer HaChinuch. It may have been a relative of the Ra'ah. Be it as it may, the Rajba wrote a Sefer called Torah Habayis on dietary laws. Torah Habayis, I'm sure you've heard. The Torah Habayis by the Rajba. The Ra'ah challenged the Rajba on many, many rulings. And therefore he wrote a Sefer, Bedek Habayis. Bedek Habayis means the cracks in the house. So the Rajba wrote Torah Sabayas, and the Ra'ah uh, wrote Bedek Habayis. Basically the house is about to crumble. And suddenly an anonymous work appeared called Mishmeres Habayas, guarding the house. And nobody knew who wrote it. The Rajba slipped in one shuva, I in what I wrote in Mishmeres Habayas. So it was written by the Rajba. This was uh, many, many disputes between Rav Shalom ben Adars and Rav Aaron Halevi. He lived from 1230 to 1300, they were both Rabbonim here in Barcelona. Okay, we're here in the streets of Barcelona, in King Square. And one very important thing to understand is probably the most bitter aspect of Jewish history that we don't talk about. We hide it under the rug. It's so painful, we won't even mention it on is the Jewish apostates because as bad as the Christian religion was to the Jewish people here in Spain it was the venom of the Jewish apostates that gave us the hardest time people by the name of Avner of Burgos Rabbi Solomon Halevi who is a great rabbi here in Spain and he under pressure one of the great Rabbanim in Spain, he converted to Christianity. And his primary disciple, Rabbi Yoshua Halorki, defamed the Rebbe. How could he leave Judaism? How could he abandon his people? We have to stay strong. And Solomon Halevi challenged him to a disputation. 
And then Joshua Halorki converted to Christianity. But we're not, we can't talk about this. And it's these individuals who caused the greatest trouble for the Jewish people, the Jewish apostates. So the Ramban, now you have to know the Ramban was the greatest of all Spanish scholars. The Ritva writes in a tshuva, I believe in Reish Samachay. I have to read to you his Lashon. The Ritva says, Zehu Sheva Chachme Arzenu. You know what the greatness of Spanish scholars are? Shekibalnu Meiroya Echaneman. That our tradition comes from one Grebi. Gadol Yada, his hand is great. Bechol Uman. Boirer Oicha he chooses the good. What's his name? Vayikru Eshemoy Man. Like the manna bread, the man, the Ramban. Ramosha ben Achman. He was born in 1194. Passed away in 1270. In the year 1263, King James of Aragon accepted the invitation of Pablo Cristiani, Friar Paul. And Friar Paul, also a Jewish apostate, said he will prove from the Talmud itself that the Chachme Amoram believed that the Messiah had already come. So the Ramban was the only one who could possibly dispute him. And he goes to King James, he says, King James, I can't dispute him, I don't have freedom of speech. King James promised Ramban freedom of speech. Now, why did they choose the Ramban? The Ramban already proved himself as the only one able to navigate these difficult times. Let's say, in the times of the Rambam, when the Rambam's work were put in Cherem, and they were burning the works of the Rambam, the Ramban was the only one who was able to navigate the situation where the Ramban came up with the following compromise. The Ramban said, we shouldn't necessarily learn all the works of the Rambam, but the Rambam personally is untouchable. The, word, the Rambam as an individual is untouchable. That was the navigation of the Ramban, and he proved himself as the only one eligible to uh, dispute Pablo Christianity. Now, this is very important. The Ramban went on the offensive in this dispute. The name of the Sefer is called Sefer Avikuach. And Pablo Christianity brought all kinds of proofs that the Chachmei Ataman believed that the Messiah came. And the Ramban said, let's get things straight. The fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity is not about the Messiah. It's about God. The Ramban writes, it's an offense to human intelligence to believe in the Trinity. It's insulting to believe in a corporeal being, a father, a son, a Holy Ghost. The Ramban says it's an insult to human intelligence. And he says, you want to speak about the Messiah? According to you, the Messiah came. Has peace reigned on this world? From the day that your supposed Messiah has come, more blood has been spilled in His name than for any other cause in the history of the world. And then the Ramban said that in his opinion, Christianity will bring the end of human civilization. From the moment the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, it declined. Look at the Muslim world today. As soon as Christianity came to the Roman world, Islam ascended. And that is what will continue until Christianity brings the complete decline of human civilization. That was the prediction of the Ramban. Obviously, this is just between us. It's not like this is, you know... But these were some of the arguments of the Ramban. These arguments took place in uh, four different sessions. And Pablo Christianity uh, asked for a recess. King James of Aragon uh, came into the shuls here in Barcelona. 
to give the final word. And when clearly the Ramban won, so the King James of Aragon famously said, he never met someone argue so valiantly a losing cause. That was the comments of King James of Aragon. The verdict was the Ramban was required within six months to leave Spain. The Ramban left in six weeks. So he was given six months, he left in six weeks. He had to leave for two years, he never returned. The Ramban passed away in the year 1270. The Ramban goes to Yerushalayim, and according to many, he's buried right next to the Maras Machpela. Some say in Akri, some say in Akko, some say there's a kever for him by the Maras Machpela. I always think, why is the Ramban buried near the Maras Machpela? Because the most famous teaching of the Ramban is through Apparatius. Maase Avois Simon Labanim. That is the most common theme of the Ramban. Therefore, he was zeichet to be buried right next to the Avais Hakadoshim. So the Ramban valiantly fought for Judaism and all the basic tenets of Judaism, which are recorded for posterity in the Sefer Havikuach. And the Ramban is one of the great heroes of the Jewish people. Zuchusai Yagen Aleinu Va'alka Yisrael Amen. Okay, good afternoon everyone. We're coming from the city of Barcelona. We were at the place where the disputation at Barcelona took place, where the Ramban had his uh, famous dispute with Pablo Cristiani. Now we're coming to the city of Girona, which is the city of the Ramban and Rabbeinu Yoyna. Now, as mentioned, in the year 1263, the Ramban was summoned to dispute Pablo Cristiani. And even though he won the dispute, he was ordered by the King of Aragon that he has six weeks to skedaddle, and the Ramban uh, left immediately. The Ramban comes to Eretz Yisrael, and then we have this famous letter known as Igeras Ramban. When exactly did the Ramban write this letter? In the Sefer Mu'ulefes Hasapirim, he brings that the Ramban wrote this letter when he was in the land of Israel, when he was in Eretz Yisrael, from Akri, he wrote it to his, his son in Castillo, his son Nachman. However, one of the world's greatest experts in the Ramban, Rav Shevel, who published many of the works of the Ramban, says, Im If there is a tradition that the Ramban wrote it to his son when he was in Eretz Yisrael, okay, then we'll accept it. But if, we're not, if we don't have such a tradition, it's very hard to believe that the Ramban wrote this letter to his son because then his son would have been an, uh, already a grown adult, and would the Ramban be writing words of Musr to a grown adult? It seems, he says, like the Ramban is addressing it to a younger child. However, many disagree with that, because there's so many commentaries on the Geras Ramban. Geras Ramban is a very deep work, that it's very reasonable, it's very plausible, that the Ramban wrote it later in life, even to an adult child. Now, if you came to the trip just to hear this, it was worth your while. The Ramban writes that any day that you read the Igeris Ramban, your prayers will be answered. Okay, so people think it's like uh, some kind of segula. You read the letter, you daven to win the lottery, you pick the lucky numbers, and then that's how it works. If you actually study the letter, there are a number of difficulties with the, with the letter that if you don't know the key to crack the code, the Igeras Ramban is a sealed book. In other words, it's impossible to understand. For example, the Igeras Ramban begins with probably the most difficult 
diktam of all, tisnaheg tamid ladaber kol dvarecha benachas. Train yourself to speak all your words benachas, gently. So you say, no problem, I'll speak gently, except for to him or to her. No, l'chol adam, to everyone. Yeah, but there are exceptions. No, b'chol There are no exceptions. There is never a time not to speak gently. Okay, that's how the Ramban begins. A few lines down, the Ramban says, Therefore, I will explain to you, Now, unless someone has had temporary amnesia, we got that already. That's how the letter began. Why is Ramban repeating himself? And it's such an obvious question, but if you don't know the answer to this question, then there is absolutely no understanding of Igeras Ramban. Here's the key. The key is, there are four chalakim of Vigeras Ramban. There are four segments, and you have to be able to identify these four small chapters in Vigeras Ramban. Part one is, how to acquire humility. You acquire humility by speaking gently, by looking at other people and trying to see how they are in fact greater than you are. That is part one of Vigeras Ramban. The Ramban then goes on to part two. He speaks about the disparagement of the Midah of Gaiva. Now the Ramban is bothered by a question. I've explained to you how to acquire humility. So now you've acquired it. Now the question is, how do you practice it? So the Ramban gives you the formula to practice humility. The formula is continue to speak gently. So in other words, you need to speak gently to acquire humility. You need to speak gently to continue in that mode. Okay, so this is another segment. And you'll see, actually in many editions of the Ramban, there are four segments. In the one I sent you, it's not broken up. Otherwise, you would have gotten the answer right away. But if you look at the uh, Nusach, if you look back on your phones, the first segment begins... That's part one. Part two. Part three. That's not how to acquire it, how to continue in that mode. And then the Ramban gives us the formula of Avoidas Hashem. And that is So these are four segments in the Igeras Ramban. Now, this is out of this world. Many people look for various schoolers to be to Yeshuais. Everybody wants Yeshuais. Everybody wants salvation. Everybody wants Nisim. Everybody wants some kind of uh, miraculous salvation in this world. In the Bodleian Library in Oxford, they discovered the original printing of Igeras Ramban. And it begins as follows. The Ramban says to his son, B'ni Nachman Hanemon Lima'id, to my dear trusted son Nachman. Zechor Tamid Ma'asaya Shero Isa, Ba'amodcha Iti. 
Remember my actions, Nachman. Remember how I used to behave? Venisei Kel, remember the miracles you saw when I was living with you back in Gerona? The Ramban lived a miraculous life. Many miraculous things happened to the Ramban. The Ramban is telling his son, Kid, remember the miracles Hashem did for me? V'nifla Oisav? Asher hayu imadi? Ushmai Hagada asher kidesh al-yadi? Bekama nisim asher Nachman, you know, you admit, you've never seen anyone in your life experience miracles like me or father. You probably want to know, how could you merit having miracles in your life? Nachman, Nachman, why do you think I am zoichet to miracles more than anybody else? I'll tell you why. Tisnaheg tamid ledaber kol dvarecha benachas. Because I speak gently. So that completely revolutionizes the whole Igeras Ramban. The Igeras Ramban was a message to his son. My dear son, if you want to be zoicha to the miracles that you saw firsthand that I am zoicha to, I'll tell you why I'm zoicha to that. I'll tell you why Hashem's miracles were always with me. Follow this formula. Tisnaheg ledaber kol dvarecha benachas. Says the Chida. Chida says the holy words of the Ramban pierce the heart. Even though they're not applicable in our generation. Why? Says the Ramban, the midah of, humil- of humility is no longer relevant in our generation. You know why? We're so nothing that you can't be an anav anymore. There's no such thing as an anav. What's an anav? An anav is a great person who says, you know, all of my greatness, all my talents, and all my ability, it's all from my Kaddish Baruch Hu. Says the Chidah, we're not great enough anymore to truly be humble. Humility is a thing of the past. In order to be humble, you have to first be great. But anyway, the Chidah writes that the piercing words of the, Chid, of the Ramban enter the heart and change a person by the way, does anybody know what is the most oft-repeated word in the Igaris Ramban? Little trivia question. The word lave. The word lave. Fourteen times. Because the objective of Igaris Ramban is to purify the heart. In any event, the Ramban passes away in Eretz Yisrael and there's a tradition in the Sefer Shalshel HaKabbalah that the Ramban's Talmidim asked, Rebbe, how are we going to know when you pass away? So Ramban said, go to the gravestone of my mother. When a crack appears in my mother's gravestone, that will be a simon that uh, I went, halachti lo'ilami. And sure enough, in the year 1270, a, a crack appeared in the gravestone of the Ramban's mother, where he ascended to heaven, Yod Aleph Nisan, in the year 1270. Amen. Okay, we're continuing on to the city of Gerona, which we mentioned was the city of the Ramban. There was another great all-time Torah personality who lived in the city of Gerona, none other than Rabbeinu Yoyna of Gerona, or Garandi, who was born in 1180, passed away in 1263. Rabbeinu Yoyna famously is the author of Sefer Shari Teshuvah. Rabbi Chaim said... That various Sifrei Musr don't talk to everyone. Some people connect with Reish's Chachma. Some people 
they connect with Shevin Musur, Chavis Havavos, or Masil Yisharim. There's only one Sefer that's like the wild card. There's only one Sefer that talks to every single Jew. Sharei Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yoyna. Rabbeinu Yoyna was a prolific writer. Rabbeinu Yoyna wrote a commentary, Masech Tabrachos, Talmidei Rabbeinu Yoyna, Aliyos to Rabbeinu Yoyna, Sharei Tshuva, Sharei Avoida, and in the year 11... In the year 1180, we famously know that there were uh, many cartloads of Svarim that were burnt, and nine years earlier, the Svarim of the Rambam had been burnt in that very location. And Rabbeinu Yonah took that as a simen men ha-shamayim, that the Shamayim was uh, displeased with the fact that many people opposed the writings of the Rambam. So the Rabbeinu Yonah ha- had a uh, change of heart. He was a student of Rav Shloyma Minhahar, Rav Shloyma of Montpellier, and because he felt that he was Mavaza, the works of the Rambam, he committed to go to Tiveria and, ba- and beg for Mechila from the Rambam at his kever for causing him this disgrace. He begins his journey. He's detained in Barcelona for three years because so many people had questions, so many people wanted his instruction and his teaching. He then went to Toledo, where he was detained over there as well, and he never made it to Eretz Yisrael. But it's reputed that Rabbi Yonah wrote the Shari Tshuva as a form of repentance for having disparaged the works of uh, the, the Rambam. I want to share with you a very powerful idea that Rabbi Yonah writes, and something that's somewhat of a mystery, and perhaps shed some light on it. Rabbeinu Yonu writes in the Shari Tshuva, in Shar Gimel, in Ois Yudalad, he talks about a grave error that many people make, that many people think that the main devastation of the soul, the main corruption of the soul, is by committing a sin. If somebody does an Avera, that causes destruction to the soul. But failure, perhaps, to fulfill positive commandments not fulfilling a mitzvah saseh, okay, you won't get the reward for fulfilling the mitzvah, but it doesn't cause a corruption of the soul. And Rabbi Yonah says that's a very big mistake, it's just the opposite. Because actually the Yushalmi tells us in Chagiga, Viter HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Alavoyin Giloi Hashem is willing to forego grave sins, V'loi Viter Alavoyin Bittol Torah. But Hashem will not forego the sin of not learn, not studying Torah. Says Rabbi Yonah, from here we see that even more grave than committing a sin is sitting around, twiddling your thumbs, wasting time. In the eyes of Shamayim, that's a much worse sin. And then Rabbi Yonah reveals to us something called Mylois Ho'elionis. And we'll continue, to be continued. One of the main destinations in Spain, we came to the city of uh, Garona because this is a city literally walked in by the greatest of Rishonim, the Ramban, Rabbeinu Yoyna, and the Ran. So here's a fun fact. Don't forget this. The Ramban and Rabbeinu Yoyna were related two ways. Okay, this is very important. Rabbeinu Yoyna's father 
And the Ramban's mother were brother and sister. So they were what we call Sheni Besheni, first cousins. Okay? So again, Rabbi Yonah's father, Ramban's mother, brother and sister. So they were first cousins. Then the Ramban had a son. Rabbi Yonah had a daughter. They married each other. So they were Mechutanim. Okay? Now, Rabbi Yonah passes away. And now we have a great dilemma. Because we know by Achenu B'nei Sfarad, you name the kid after the living grandparent. But now Rabbi Yonah passed away not to name him after the Gada Hadar. So the question is, do we name this kid Yaina or do we name the kid Moshe? The Ramban Paskind, in deference to Rabbi Yaina, the great Chassid, he ordered that their child be named Yaina. Now the Ramban, the Chidar reports, had Giloy Eliyahu Anavi. Okay, Ramban had Giloy Eliyahu Anavi. Furthermore, the Ramban's soul was in the beard of Adam Harishain, on the right side, Rabbi Chaim Vital says. It depends what side of the beard your soul is. Now, we can't go through right now, everybody here, what hair in Adam Arishon your soul was. That's beyond the scope of this clip. But the Ramban was on the right side of the beard of Adam Arishon. That's why he was one of the only Rishonim who was Zoycha to understand the Kabbalah of the Zohar, whatever that means, Rabbi Chaim Yital says. But because he was on the right side, it was, there was an element of Midas Hadin, and therefore, there was a certain... Um, since he was on the right, he was not Zoycha to the Chachmas HaZoyar. And he was Bechinas Dinim. He was only Zoycha to it, Bezik Nusai. So these are some of the revelations of Rabbi Chaim Vital. Again, these streets, literally, Rabbi Noyayna, Rabbi Chaim Vital, um, the Ramban, and uh, the Ran. Tzchusam Yagin Aleinu. Okay. Okay. Okay, we're here in the streets of Gerona. Of course, we know Rabbi Yoyna graced the streets of the city. Rabbi Yoyna lived here. He thrived here. And Rabbi Yoyna wrote many works. And when you see these gates, the Sha'arim, you can't help but think of Sha'are Teshuvah. The gates of... Nah. The gates of Tshuva. Rabbi Yoyna wrote a work, Sha'are Tshuva. He also wrote Sha'are Ho'avoida. And... You know, perhaps inspired by the background over here. Though, as we mentioned on the bus, Chaim Velazhna writes that different Sfarim speak to different people. There's one Sefer that was written that speaks to all Jews, and that's the Shari Tshuva, Rabbi Yana. So, okay everyone, hope everyone had a, is having a great day. Um, I was asked to try to revisit some of the highlights of uh, the area where the disputation at Barcelona took place for those who missed our presentation but for those who heard it already so we're just going to give you the executive recap and maybe add a very important point we mentioned the Ramban was born in 1194 he passed away in 1270 in 1263 Pablo Cristiani submitted to King James of Aragon that he could prove from the Talmud itself that the Amoraim believed that the Messiah had already come. In other words, he was going to support his belief in Christianity from the Talmud itself. As we mentioned, the most venomous enemies and opponents of Judaism were always the Jewish apostates. As we mentioned, the greatest threat to the Jewish people are Jews, not Gentiles. This has been throughout our history. 
whether it was the Mesiavnim in the times of Hanukkah, and there are many uh, examples of this, whether it was the Bolsheviks, you know, the Bolsheviks were more successful in eradicating Judaism in 10 years than the Russian government in 100 years. And uh, the Ramban was the only one suited for this job to be able to debate Pablo Christiani. And the, the debate took place in that public square where we just were in Barcelona. And you can imagine King James of Aragon was sitting there and the condition was, the Ramban said he had to have complete freedom of speech. And it was very dangerous for the Ramban to uh, defend traditional Judaism in front of all of the monks and cardinals and not only did the Ramban do a valiant job and not only did he defend traditional Judaism but the Ramban moved to the offensive he straightforwardly attacked the Trinity he said the Trinity is an insult to human intelligence the Ramban said worse Christianity was hypocrisy is Christianity a religion of love and kindness from the time of Yeshu until today the world has been filled with violence and injustice, with the shedding of more blood by his followers than of any other creed. And then the Ramban offered a prediction. He said from the time that the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, it declined and Islam spread. And says the Ramban, the more the world embraces Christianity, the more the world will decline. The Ramban was given... Uh, <laughs> no alternative. He was told he has to leave Garona for two years and he had a six-month grace period. And the Ramban did not wait. Within six weeks, the Ramban left for Eretz Yisrael. But I want to share with you one particular attack that Pablo Christianity hurled upon the Ramban and how the Ramban answered it. Pablo Christianity said, you know, I don't understand there's a prophecy in the Chumash, Layasur Sheva Yehuda. And he said, But you people think that it's fulfilled with you rabbis. You rabbis don't have smicha. How could you call yourself Rebbe? You don't have authentic smicha dating back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Whereupon the Ramban answered, You are correct, but it is irrelevant to our disagreement. The truth is, says Ramban, the word Rebbe is not a title of royalty. Rav means someone who has smicha. Rebbe means someone who teaches Torah. And then the Ramban says, I am neither of sovereignty, nor am I a Talmud type, nor am I even a good student. The Ramban says, the Ramban says, the reason I told that to him, I said it b'derech musar. I said it out of humility. And one has to ask and think to themselves, humility to Pablo Christianity? Is that a time for Anivos? Pablo Christianity is attacking the tenets of the religion. Is this a time for the Ramban to downplay his worthiness? Is this a time for the Ramban to undermine his own credentials? So we see, like the Ramban himself writes in the Igeras Ramban, Tisnaheg ledaber kol dvarecha benachas lechol adam uvechol es. There is no individual. There is no time where arrogance is called for, and it, you have to be struck by the extent of the humility of the Ramban 
that here he is, he's publicly debating a former a, a Jewish apostate, and even now, even at a time like this, the Ramban is displaying exemplary humility. So this is the Ramban, not only Noah Doyresh, but Venoah Mekayim as well. In the Sefer Havikuach, in his debate with Pablo Christiani, you see the great extent, and that is why the Ramban says about the Midah of Aniva, Shehi Midah Toiva Mikol HaMidah Yisat Toivais. Hi everyone, back with, back with the action. Let's just take this opportunity, everybody, let's give a big round of applause for Rav Avi Lurokea for putting together such a beautiful trip. Okay, we're on the way back to Barcelona. Let's, get, let's go back to where we started. How Torah got to Spain in the first place. So we mentioned that some trace the first settlement of Jews in Spain all the way back to the destruction of the first base Hamikdash by Nebuchadnezzar in the year 422 BCE. Some say as a reward for having aligned his forces with those of Babylon during the siege of Jerusalem, King Aspian of Spain was awarded a share of the bounty in the form of a number of elite captives of royal blood. Time of the second Chorben, 68 CE, number of Jews were once again exiled by Vespasian, Titus, and Hadrian. Now, in the early centuries after the destruction of the second base Hamikdash, when the Iberian Peninsula was under pagan rule, before the Roman government embraced Christianity, the situation was tolerable. The Jews had many privileges. But once the Roman emperors embraced Christianity, the situation became unbearable. And like we mentioned, the Jews fared much better under Muslim rule than under Christian rule. So it was considered a great bracha. Does anyone know, what year did Mohammed come to the scene? Six... 622. And then the Muslims began conquering the Iberian Peninsula. They crossed the Straits of Gibraltar. In what year? Think of your local convenience store, your corner store where you buy coffee. Unbelievable. Wow. What an educated group. 7 Eleven. In the year 711, the Arabs invaded the Iberian Peninsula through the Straits of Gibraltar, and Spain came under Muslim rule. By 712, Islam ruled over great areas from the south of the Pyrenees to the borders of India. This ushers in the Golden Age of Spain. Now, one thing you need to know is we Jews, we love to look back at persecution and say, wow, how wonderful it was. It was like we look back at Egypt and we say, remember the cucumbers in Egypt? That's, that's, human, that's Jewish nature. We look back at persecution and we say, oh, we love our tormentors. They were so uh, magnam- magnanimous to us. But you have to know the golden age of Spain, it's a relative term. Relative to the brutality of the Christian world, the golden age of Spain was tolerable. And it was further enhanced now, this is very interesting. Why was it that we fared better under Muslim rule than Christian rule? And that is because the Muslims dealt with reality. They recognized we were not converting to Islam. So, they resigned themselves that the Jews would be second-class citizens. What did the, what did the uh, Muslims call us? Dimmies. We were second-class citizens. But the Christian world 
could never come to terms with uh, our lack of conversion. And therefore, in 1096, they began the Crusades. Now, the Golden Age of Spain was further enhanced by a great statesman, linguist, by the name of Chizdai Ibn Shaprut. However, fasten your seatbelts, because something happened in the year 990 that would forever change the face of the Jewish world. According to some historians, four great Ge'onim set sail from the Babylonian yeshivas in, in, uh, in Babel. That's right, Babylonian yeshivas in Babel, very good. So, um, according to many historians, they were setting... Now, at the time, the balance of, of power was such that the great Torah academy in the world was in Babylon. It is the opinion of Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Halevi, the great historian, that these four sages did not set sail from Babel, but rather they set sail from Bari, Italy. And they were collecting money for the yeshivas. And the, these four great Tamide Chachamim, they were, taken, they were captured by Demahan, who's the captain of the fleet of Caliph Evid al-Rahman al-Nazar of Cordoba. What were the names of these four scholars? Rab Chushiel ben Elchanan, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Chanoich, and Rabbeinu Shmaria ben Elchanan. This is reported by the Raivad in the Sefer Shalshalas HaKabbalah. Excuse me, in the Sefer HaKabbalah. The Raivad says that Rabbeinu Chushiel was ransomed in the community of North Africa, Karoen. The son of Rav Chushiel was the great Rabbeinu Chananel the Rebbe of the Rif. Then Rav Shmaryahu was ransomed in Alexandria in Egypt and Rabbi Moshe ben Chanoich was ransomed by the community in Cordova, Spain. This was a seminal moment in the history of the Jewish people. For those of you who learned in Yeshiva Tarvadas, who are Talmidim of Rapam, on the 50th yard site, of the father of our revered Rav Shiva, Rav Henoch Leibowitz, Rav Pam came to the Shiva, and he spoke about how there were other events in the history of the Jewish people that resembled the Dalet Shvuyim. One of those events, Rav Pam said, was when his Rebbe, Rav David Leibowitz, Echetzak Levracha, came to America from Slabarka to be able to realign the balance of power from Europe to Tyre in America. Be it as it may, Rav Moshe ben Chanoich was ransomed by the Jewish community of Cordoba. The story goes that he comes to the yeshiva in Cordoba, which was somewhat modest, and the saintly Rav Nasan, the Avbezin, was giving shir. And there were some questions that they asked the Avbezin and he was not familiar with when this new scholar, Rav Moshe, asked for permission to reply. And he was able to answer every question. Rav Moshe answered every question. And Rav Nasan was so impressed with the knowledge of Rav Moshe that he said, I hereby step down. And he relinquished his uh, leadership of the yeshiva to Rav Moshe ben Chanoich, who took over the yeshiva. And when Ibn Ruhamis learned that he let this, his, uh, cap, this captured sage go for such a low price, he asked the caliph to allow him to demand a greater ransom, whereupon Chizda ibn Shaprut interceded. He convinced the caliph that it's very important for Spain to have someone of the caliber of Rav Moshe ben Chanoich, 
and they let the ransom slide at that price. And this really realigned the balance of power from Babylonia to Cordova. Now, this began a new period of learning for Spanish Jewry. This was Rav Moshe ben Chanoich. Now, the story also goes that when Rav Moshe ben Chanoich was on the ship with his son Rav Chanoich, so it's Rav Moshe ben Chanoich with his little boy Chanoich. His wife was there too. And Moshe ben Chanoich's wife was very beautiful. And the pirate had his eye on her. And he was going to abduct her. And she asked her husband, What should I do if I jump overboard and I drown myself? Will I be resurrected at the time of Tchia Sanesim? Whereupon Rav Moshe ben Chanoich said, Amar Hashem mi bashan ashiv, ashiv mi yam, That you will in fact have Tchia Sanesim. Whereupon she drowned herself in the ocean. Now, after Rav Moshe passed away, I'll call him back later. After Rav Moshe passed away, Rav Chanoich, his, his son, took over. Now, interestingly, Rav Chanoich, the son of Rav Moshe, was the Rebbe of Rav Shmuel Hanagid. Rav Chanoich was an exceptionally wealthy man, and he was treated royally, especially by his uh, funder, Chiznai Ibn Shaprut. Nevertheless, Rav Chanoich himself lived quite an ascetic life. Now, if you haven't fastened your seatbelts yet, you need to hear the real political intrigue that happened in Spain in the beginning of the period of the Rishonim. Because I want you to know, Rav Chanoich was the Rebbe of Shmuel Hanogid. Shmuel Hanogid was the first of all the Rishonim. So the first generation of Rishonim are Shmuel Hanogid, Rabbeinu Hananel, the son of Rav Chushiel, very good. And the third of the first generation of Rishonim was Rav Nissen Goyen. Rav Nissen Goyen, who was a mechutan of Shmuel Hanagid. Now, Rav Chanoich, despite his being the, the uh, son of Rav Moshe, who was the leader of Cordova and Jewry, and despite his, his scholarship, his reign as Rosh Hashiva was challenged by somebody by the name of Yosef Ibn Avisor, who was the Talmud Muvuk of Rav Moshe, Rav Chanoich's father. And this, his leadership was hotly contested. Now, Rav Chanoich was held in very great esteem. Even Rav Haigoin did not accept the contention of Rav Yosef Ibn Avisor. He would not even see him, even though Rav Yosef Ibn Avisor thought Rav Haigoin would side with him. Because you have to understand, when Rav Moshe ben Chanoich took over in Spain, he's shifting the balance of power from Babylon, from the Goyim in Babylon, to Spain. So it was thought that Rav Haigoin would side with Rav Yosef ben Avisor. But no, Rav Haigoin sided with Rav Chanoich. Rav Chanoich put Rav Yosef ben Avisor into Cheyran. However, there was an, a follower of Rav Yosef ben Avisor named Yaakov ibn Go. He's appointed by the Caliph as the supreme head of the Jewish community in Cordova. He tells Rav Chanoich, if you don't step down, I'm going to put you on an unmanned ship, send you out to sail, and well, you'll just drift off into oblivion. However, 
he summons Rabbi Yosef ben Avisar to take over the yeshiva and Rabbi Yosef ben Avisar says, no, I repent, I do tshuva, I recognize that from Babylon until Cordova, there is no one of the likes of Rabbi, of Rabbi Chanoich ben Rabbi Moshe. Now, it's related by the Ravid that when Rabbi Yaakov ibn Go died, despite the fact that Yaakov ibn Go was the bitter enemy of Rabbi Chanoich ben Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Chanoich wept bitterly. He said, Rabbi Yosef ben Aviso was a very char- charitable, excuse me, Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Go was a very charitable individual. This shows the great character of Rabbi Chanoich ben Rabbi Moshe. Now, Rabbi Chanoich ben Rabbi Moshe had a little bit of a tragic ending. One year on Simchas Torah, Rabbi Chanoich ascended the Bima, and they're reading the special Kriyas HaTorah of Simchas Torah. Their weight was too heavy, and the woodwork of the platform caved in, and Rav Chanoich passed away. Now, we mentioned Rabbi Yosef ben Avisor. Rabbi Yosef ben Avisor challenged the leadership of the yeshiva in Cordova of Rav Chanoich ben Ramosha. It's interesting. There is a remnant of the scholarship of Rabbi Yosef ben Avisor. And on the Machsar, on Yom Kippur, in the Shachris, we have a tefillah, it goes like this. Uh, first, we want a very big round of applause for our cameraman, Rav Nassim Weldler, who's been training for many months to be able to uh, pr- professionally record these presentations for posterity. Rav Nassim, who's a famous chazan, reminded me that in the Machsar, on Yom Kippur for Shachras, there's a tefillah. Hayoim yikosev b'sefer azich roinois hachayim hamaves ana kana urina imdina esyoirina esyatsvana chalina latipnei dar el yoin that is written that was written by Rabbi Yosef ibn Avisor who contended, who challenged the leadership of the yeshiva of Rav Chanoik ben Ramosha. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Avisar was put in Cherem. He never returned to Spain. He died in Damascus in 1020. We heard, we've never heard anything from him. All we know is his contribution to the Machsar of Yom HaKippurim, Hayoim Yikasev, Besefer Hazachroinois, Hachayim Vehamavas. So this Yom Kippur, when you're thinking about that tefillah, remember the rulership of the yeshiva in Cordova and Rabbi Yosef ben Avisar. So this is a little bit of how Torah came to Spain in the first place. The story of the Dalet Shvuyim, the story of Ramosha ben Chanoich, Rab Chanoich ben Ramosha, as well as the challenge of Rabbi Yosef ben Avisar. And we'll see everybody soon back in Barcelona. Okay, good morning everyone. Shalom Aleichem. I hope everyone had a good night's sleep last night and then again this morning on the bus. Okay, I want to begin by sharing with you some trivia. Now this is a piece of information that is completely unknown. And this is a word we use very freely, but almost nobody knows what it means. And that is the word Sepharad. What does the word Sepharad mean? Many people think Sepharad means Spain. Sfarad does not mean Spain. 
Sepharad in Hebrew means Iberian. It refers to the entire Iberian Peninsula. So a Jew who came from Portugal, or a Jew who came from Saragossa, or Aragon, or Castile, they were Sepharad. In any event, we know that the foundation of Halacha, of course, is the Shulchan Aruch, the Beis Yosef. And in the Hakdama of the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo gives us his operating principle, and that is, he takes into account the opinion of the three Amudei Olam. Who are the three Amudei Olam? The Beis Yosef says he takes into account the opinion of the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi, the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, and the Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbeinu Moshe, then Maiman. And I realized something remarkable. All three Amudei Olam, the Rif, the Rush, and the Rambam, they all taught Torah in this country that we're in today. The Rambam, of course, was born in Cordova. The Rush, we spoke about in 1306, became the Rav of Toledo. And the Rif, the last 14 years of his life, he was the Rosh Hashiva in Lucina. I believe we'll be there tomorrow. So all three Gedolim, the Rif, the Rush, and the Rambam, they all graced this country. And then I realized, what about the Beis Yosef? Rabbi Yosef Karo. Rabbi Yosef Karo lived in Tzvaz, but we have nothing to worry about because Rabbi Yosef Karo was also born in Spain. Isn't it amazing that all of the Balei Halacha lived and taught in Sepharad? Now, who are we to probe the mysteries of Hashgach El I know that it's certainly worthy of our contemplation that the three greatest Paiskim of all time, the Rif, the Rush, and the Rambam, all lived in Spain, and the author of the Shulchan Aruch himself was born in Spain. It's interesting that Spain, and not Eretz Yisrael, is the Shoresh of Halacha. So let's think of it as follows. If the Torah says, And we know in the beginning God created the world, and Rashi tells us, The world was created for the sake of the Torah. So that means there's something about Spain that because of Spain, the world was created. Which means it has to be alluded somewhere in the Masa Beratius, the f- foundational preeminence of this country. And Hashem sent me the following Matana. On the third day of creation, the Pasuk says, Hashem gathers all the water. Yikavu hamayim mitachas hashamayim omakam echad and then it hit me, Rabbi Isai, if on the third day of creation, okay, so Hashem gathers all the water, and He gathers all the water into one plot, place. And then the Pasuk says, Vayikra lekim liyabasha eretz, hamayim karayamim. Hashem calls the gathering of water, seas, Lashon Rabim. And Rashi's bothered. What's Rashi's kasha? Why does Hashem refer to all the various waters as seas, plural? It's one body of water. All the water is connected. It should call, it should say, Vayikra leikim, vayabasha eretz, hamayim kara yam. Why yamim? So what does Rashi say? Rashi makes the following comment. Vehaloi yam echadhu. Ela enoi doime tamdog ha'olam in hayam ba'akoi. Le tamdog. 
the Pasuk saying that fish tastes differently in Akko than it tastes in Spain. Now there's a question, what does Rashi refer to when he says Aspamia? What are the waters of Aspamia? So according to the Bereshus Rabbah, it refers to the Mediterranean coast. But the Mizrahi says Aspamia refers to Spain. So think about it. The Pasuk in the beginning of the Masa Bereshus says that for all you fish tasters out there, for all you water connoisseurs, the water in Spain, the fish in Spain, tastes differently than the fish in Akko. No, what's the Torah telling me? The Torah is giving me fish tasting advice? The Torah is giving us water flavoring advice? Why, what does the Torah mean? Enoi doime tamdog ha'olam enayam ba'akko tamdog ha'olam enayam ba'aspamya. And Marv Rabbi it hit me. Ein mayim ela Torah. So on the second day of creation, it says, Ayoy merleikim, yihira kia v'soich ha'mayim, v'himavdil in mayim l'mayim. So on the second day of creation, Hashem splits the waters, the upper waters from the lo- lower waters. Says the Zohar HaKadosh, what are the upper waters? Zohar HaKadosh says, the upper waters are Torah Shabbat Sav, Ein mayim ho'el yoinim elatar Shabbat these are the upper waters of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The upper waters, there's no human intervention. They're immutable. The Chachamim have no Shlita over the Tar Shabbat The upper waters are the Tar Shabbat The lower waters are the Tar Shabbat This is the Torah of the Chachamim Yisrael. But I believe that Hashem further divides the lower waters, the Tar Shabbat There's not one Yam HaTalmud. The Torah of different countries has different flavors, different dimensions. Yeah, of course, there's Torah Shabbat but there's different Torah Shabbat There's the Torah of Eretz Yisrael, but then there's the Torah of Aspamia, there's the Torah of Spain. There's Torah Eretz Yisrael. Torah Eretz Yisrael is Ein Torah Ketorah Eretz Yisrael. And then there's Torah Saspamia. Torah Saspamia is the Torah of the Rambam, the Torah of the Rif, the Torah of the Rashba, the Torah of the, Ra- the, the Rosh, the Torah of the Beis Yosef, which is Marumas in the very beginning of Masa Bereshis. First the Pasuk says, Yikavu Hamayim El Makayim First Hashem is Mavdil Bein Mayim Lamayim, and then Hashem further subdivides the Torah down here in this world into the Torah of Eretz Yisrael and the Torah of Spain. And that is why we have come on this Nesia Kadosha to savor the special, unique Mayim, Enoidoyme Mayim, Enoidoyme Dog, Ayam Ba'aspamya. We've come to savor the Torah of the Rambam, the Rosh, the Rif, the Rajba, the Ritva, Rabbeinu Bechaye, Rabbi Huda Halevi, Rav Shmuel Hanogid, and all the great Rishonim that lived in this country, whose Torah is Marumas in the very beginning of Masa Bereshis. Okay, we'll continue uh, to elaborate a bit further. Okay, we're here in Segovia. We're at the aqueduct that the Roman built in the first century. And of course, what could be a more stirring scene during the Bein HaMetzarin, during the time of the year that we commemorate Chorben, than to see the architectural prowess of the Romans. Because 
You know, we have a concept that there are four exiles. And the Maral asks, why four exiles? Why Bavel, Paras, Madai, Roimi? Why not, let's say, Yishmael? And the Maral offers the following very important concept. Because the definition of Golos is a Malchus that usurps their Kayach from Klal Yisrael. Like Chazal tells in the Gemara Megillah, Yushalayim and Kesaria. If someone were to say they're both built, don't believe them. If somebody were to say they're both Bechorbanoi, don't believe them. If someone says Yushalayim is Banoi and Kesaria is Kharav, believe them. Because there's this seesaw relationship between Klal Yisrael and Roimi. So when the Beis HaMikdash is Bechorbanoi, then Roimi is Bebinyanoi. So if we see the Binyan of Roimi, that represents Chorben Beis HaMikdash. So we're here today to see the Binyan of the Galos of Malchus Roimi, which brings into focus and highlights to us the Chorben of Yushalayim and the Chorben of the Beis HaMikdash. Okay, back at it. This is a very important question. This is the most important question you need to know the answer to. Headed to the city of Toledo. We all know the expression, Holy Toledo! Right? Anybody ever hear that? Raise your hand if you've heard that expression, Holy Toledo. Well, it's a very responsive audience. What is the Makar Kadosh of the expression, Holy Toledo? Where does Holy Toledo come from? So most people think that it has something to do with Toledo, Spain. Now, according to most scholars, Holy Toledo is because there are more churches per capita in Toledo, Ohio than any other city in the world. So therefore it's called Holy Toledo. But that is the second best guess as the source of Holy Toledo. The best guess is it's a Lashon Sagi Nahar. There are more bars in Toledo, Ohio than there are anywhere else in the world. So it's Lashon Sagi Nahar, Holy Toledo, but really... We know what kind of holy city it is. But I am here today to tell you the real source of the, the expression Holy Toledo. And even though they may not be, know this, Ihu Lechazi, Maz Lechazi. What is the source of Holy Toledo? Now, let's begin as follows. In the year 1303, Rabbeinu Asher, the Rush, had to flee Germany. And that's because he was afraid that he would be imprisoned like his Rebbe, the Marami Rotenberg, was imprisoned. The Marami Rotenberg was imprisoned on trumped-up charges, and not only was he imprisoned, they demanded an exorbitant ransom. And the Marami Rotenberg Paskin, based on the Gemara and Gittin, ain't poidin asashun yeser mikadei demayan, that they cannot redeem him from captivity. But his student, the Rush, disagreed with Marami Rotenberg. And the Rush said, that the din of Ein Poydina Sashvuy and Yasemik De Demeyem does not apply to the Gadol Hadar. So the, re, the Rush raised the requisite sum, and by the time he collected it, the Marame Rotenberg died in jail. And not only that, they did not allow the release of his remains until a Jew by the name of Alexander Wimpin redeemed him on condition that Alexander would be buried next to Marame Rotenberg. And you could go today in Germany. We went, courtesy of Lalecha's tours, a number of years ago, one of the, the uh, uh, earliest launching historic Avir, powered by Lalecha's tour. We went to the uh, 
grave of the Marami Rotenberg. By the way, the Chidah says that the Toysus on the Yuma was written by Marami Rotenberg, and next to him is buried Alexander Wimpen. In any event, now that the Marami Rotenberg passed away, the Rush was afraid that he was next. So the Rush fled Germany, and he comes to Spain. Now someone of the caliber of the Rush, he comes to Spain, he needs a job. Where is he going to get a job? The Rush is from the Chachme Ashkenaz, the Rashba. Rav Shloima ben Aderes secured a job for the Rush in the city of Toledo. We mentioned that the Rush and the Rajba spent eight days together in Barcelona. Now, Maran ben Yosef had a Magid that learned with him. And he recorded everything the Magid taught him in a work called Magid Mesharim. The Magid revealed, the Malach revealed to the Beis Yosef that in Shamayim, the Rashba is Rav Shloima ben Aderes Bechir Hashem. The Rajba is the one selected in Shamayim. And the Beis Yosef said, and what about the Rush? Says the Malach to the Rush, you can find this in Magid Meisham, Parshas Vayakel. The Magid said to the Beis Yosef, Asher, Kadishi, Asher, the Holy One, of all the Rishonim, the one that was called Holy, in Shamayim was the Rush. And that is the real source for the expression Holy Toledo. It comes from the revelation of the Magid to the Beis Yosef. So we're headed to the city of Toledo, the city of the Rush, Holy Toledo. How do you like that? Okay, we're going to speak more about the Rush momentarily. Okay, back at it here. So the Rush comes to Spain in the year 1303. The Rush had a very interesting custom. You know, many many Rosh Yeshiva, they'll take Shlishi. <coughs> Rebus, they usually take Shishi. Sam Soifer writes in Shuva Samachvav 66, the Morchash is Shishi, that's how you remember it, Shuva 66. The Rush was Makbed every week to take the lowest Aliyah. Now, I never knew which is the lowest Aliyah. What's the lowest Aliyah? I thought Ravi was the lowest. The Rush said Chamishi is the lowest. And the Rush was marked always to take Chamishi. Now why is Chamishi the lowest? Now it's important to know which is the lowest if you're a Gabai and a guy comes into the shul that you don't like. You have to know you need to know these things. But the Rush would take Chamishi every week. Why? People didn't like Chamishi. Because they said, you know, the first Aliyah has a Shidduch. The number one has a shidduch with nine, two is mashadach with eight, three with seven, four with six, five, five's a bachelor. So nobody ever wanted to take chamishi. So the rush said, I'll be mashadach every week with chamishi. Now the rush comes to Spain and Talmidim come to him from all over the world. We have chuvas that Talmidim came to the rush to learn all the way from Russia. Can you imagine in the 14th century, students coming all the way from Russia? Now, the Rush comes to Spain, and he notices a custom that he really did not appreciate. And that is, many people were focused on learning the Rif, and not on learning the Gemara. Furthermore, many people were paskining from the Rambam. The Rush writes in a tshuva, Klal Laman Alfa's test, that you can't paskin halacha from the Rambam. He says, the Rambam is different from all other poiskim. Other poiskim, they let you know which Gemara they got the Psak from. So now you can analyze. Is the Gemara a good source? Is the Gemara a good analogy? But says the Rush, Hu kasav sifroi kimisnave mipi ha-gemura, ha-gevura, 
believe Tam of Leiraya. The Rambam just writes halacha. You have no idea where he got it from. <coughs> Says the Rush, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the Gemara, you cannot paskin straight from the Rambam. By the way, this is an issue that reverberates until our time. You know, people who may know Mishnabura or Kitzur Shulchan Aruch and say, well, yeah, the Mishnabura says, but you have to know what the Makar is. You have to know if the situation at hand is analogous to the source. Now I want to share with you uh, literally one of the most haunting stories you'll ever hear. This story is quoted by the Chidah and the Shem Hagadolim. The Chidah says the source of the story is a handwritten document that he personally saw from Reb Chaim Vital. This was written, <coughs> Reb Chaim Vital says, in a letter of the Russia's son. Now, the Rush had many boys. The Rush had eight sons. The most well-known was the Balatuna, Rabbeinu Yaakov. But it's interesting, Rabbeinu Yaakov was not the Rush's Mamalamakai. The tour, by the way, comes to Spain, couldn't get a job. Was an Oni Ve'evyoin. Ayin, the tour. This is very interesting. I heard this from Rabbeinu Yaakov Obam. If you look in the tour, the tour brings that he asked his father whether, you know, the Gemara talks about whether um, you're allowed to collect money for Shabbos Suda, so Rabbi Kiva would say, Eat peanut butter and jelly and don't borrow money. So the tour asked his father Rush, what about me? Am I poor enough that I would qualify for this? And the Rush never answered his son. And it's a mystery, why wouldn't the Rush answer his son? So Rav Obam explained, the Rush did not want to say halacha lemaisa that his son had a din of an ani, because that would create a reality and a metzius that his son would be an ani and he would, it would be impossible to extricate himself from that. But this is written by the Rush's mamala makoim, Rabbeinu Yehuda. Rabbeinu Yehuda said, when I'm asked, what was life like back in Germany when I was a little boy before we ran away to Spain? He said, I was too young to remember anything. Because my grandfather, the Russia's father, who knows, who is the Russia's father? All of you who knew Holy Toledo, anybody know who the Russia's father is? Rabbeinu Yechiel, Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel, Rabbeinu Yechiel, was born in the year 1210. And when he was 16 years old, he had a friend in yeshiva named Rabbi Shleimah HaKoyen. And Rabbeinu Yechiel and Rabbi Shleimah HaKoyen, they sealed a covenant with each other that they would split the reward of their mitzvahs and their masim toivim and their Torah. It was once Leil Yom HaKippurim. And in Ashkenaz, they were very makbed that every Jewish adult male should light a ner bari for themselves on Yom Kippur. By the way, you know there's a halacha, many people light a yard side lecht on Yom Kippur. But actually, the halacha requires that every married man light a nerbari, what we call a gesundlicht, for themselves on Yom Kippur. Everybody know that? Besides your yartzeitlicht, besides your licht for Havdalah, ner sheshavas, you light a nerbari. And they were very superstitious about it. If your nerbari went out, you, you weren't surviving the year. It, it wasn't happening for you. And that year, Rabbeinu Yechiel, his nerbari went out, he was very scared, and sure enough, 
he passed away on Cholamoid Sukkot. Now, the Minogan Ashkenaz was before you buried the mace, you lay the Aron out at the entrance of the cemetery to be able to straighten out the Avarim of the mess. Because, you know, it would be very uncomfortable and very unseemly if the mess's legs were crossed or his eyes were bent. You know, you need to look good down there in the grave. You know, it's important to look straight and look your best. So they would straighten you out, make sure the smile was good, the head was straight, the knees were straight, the arms were straight. And right before the burial of Rabbeinu Yechiel, Rabbi Shloyma HaKoyin says, Rabbeinu Yechiel, remember the, the deal we made. We're splitting all of our mitzvahs. And in his repose, Rabbeinu Yechiel broke out laughing. And everybody heard. A little while later, Rabbi Shloyma HaKoyin was sitting and learning in the base Medrash. And who walks into the base Medrash? None other than Rabbeinu Yechiel. And Rabbi Shalom HaKoyin says, You know, if I didn't know you better, I might be surprised to see you walking around. And they were learning together. And Rabbi Shalom HaKoyin said, No, what's master? I hear what's going on. And he says, Gan Eden is mamish very gishmak. It's like, it's, it's like Gan Eden. I mean, no, it is Gan Eden. It is Gan Eden. So he said, um, I have a chair over there. I'm doing very good. So Rav Shalma Khan said, you have Rishus to leave Gan Eden to come learn with me? He says, Avada, I would come without Rishus. But I don't want to come. It's not that I don't have Rishus. I'm allowed to come. I don't want to because it doesn't look good for the Rishonim that live before me who are not allowed to come. So I don't like to make too many cameo appearances. But yes, I do have Rishus. A few months later, six months later, this is again after the death of Rabbeinu Yechiel, Rabbeinu Yechiel, his wife is about to hit the sack, and Rabbeinu Yechiel appears to his wife. Not in a dream, alive. He walks into the house. He says, what are you doing? Quick, get out of here. Tomorrow they're going to annihilate every Jew in the city. I've already davened to save the rest of Germany, but my tefillahs were not answered for your city. So please, my dear wife, run away immediately now on Shabbos. Save your life. Save your mother, save your sisters, save our children. And that is how the wife of Rabbeinu Yechiel was able to save the rush. This is reported by Rabbi Chaim Vital and brought in the Sefer Shem Hagdoilam of the miraculous rescue of the mother of the rush through the appearance of Rabbeinu Yechiel after his demise where he appeared behakets. So when we talk about Toledo... Anything could happen in the city of Toledo. We're in the central square here in Toledo, and, you know, we're walking down the streets, we're buying magnets, as if, you know, it's a regular Wednesday afternoon. On April 29th, 1492, in Toledo's central municipal square, an officer of arms came, flanked by three trumpeters, two local magistrates, two bailiffs, and they read the following proclamation in the square of Toledo. All Jews and Jewesses of whatever age they may be that live, reside, and dwell in our said kingdoms and dominions of Castile shall never return to, reside therein, or any part of them, either as residents, travelers, or in any other manner whatever, under pain of death. So this is a very pleasant area right here.
And we command and forbid any person or person of our said kingdom to presume publicly, secretly, to receive, shelter, protect, defend any Jew or Jewess under pain of losing all property, vassals, castles, and other possessions. So all the weapons being sold on these streets, all the soldiers, all the these are all to commemorate what happened to us 500 plus years ago. Really, this time of the year, we know the Gezerah went into effect August 2nd on Tishabav in 1492. So this proclamation in Toledo, well, as you could just imagine, here's the area. Okay, we're here, we're overlooking the city of Toledo. Toledo is the city of the Rush. The Rush came here in 1303 from Germany. Now, we don't know exactly where in Toledo the Rush was buried, but the Rush is buried here in the city. And the Rush is buried uncommonly for the early times. He's buried next to his wife. And there's a beautiful inscription over the gravestone of the Rush and his wife. As we poured in the Sefer Avni Zikara, and it says over the Rush and Eishas Harash, it says, Hanehavim b'chayehem uvemisam leinifradu. Beloved in their lifetime and not departed in death. And this shows the special chavivos the Rush and his wife had. And it's interesting, if you look in the Archos Chaim of the Rush, the Rush speaks about the importance of a husband showing special cover to his wife. The Rush says, One yizaher b'chvayt ishtecha, v'im samoel t'charkeha, b'min t'kare And it's interesting, the Rush was zoiche, not only to be the father of the tour, Rabbi, Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Rabbi Yasher, not only his Mamalak and Rabbeinu Yehuda ben Rabbi Yasher, but another, another six Rishonim, the Rush and his wife, buried side by side. The Rush and his wife were Zoycha to produce eight great Rishonim. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Shalom Aleichem. I hope everyone's having a great day. I want everyone to listen very carefully because in the next presentation we're going to be slipping in little hints about upcoming trips, Avir trips. So please pay attention. We might even slip in a promo code. Okay? I'm not going to say what the promo code is right away and if you could figure it out, you could be, uh, you could get 0.001% off your tri- your trip. So listen very carefully. What? what, what? And you, yeah, and the next time we cross the river, you get a free zip line across the... Okay. We're going to speak about one of the great Rishayim who lived in Toledo, Spain. He was a Talmud of the Rift. Tomorrow we're going to go to Lucina, the Beis HaChayim, where the Rift was buried. He was also a student of the Rimagash. And this great Rishayin, aside from studying Talmud, became a master of literary style. In Hebrew and Arabic, we're speaking about Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, one of the greatest of the all-time Paitanim. Says the Rashba. You ever hear of the Rashba? Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaras. In Simen Tafyur Ches. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is the greatest in merit and distinction of all the Paitanim. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi was literally in love with the land of Israel. After all, he wrote the famous words, Libi ba-Mizrach, va'ani b'saif ma'arav. While I'm on the far ends of the west, my heart is in the east. And there have been 
many pilgrims who traveled to Eretz Yisrael, including Spanish Rishonim like the Ramban, but no one expressed their love for Eretz Yisrael as passionately as Rabbi Yudah Levi. So, for example, the Rambam in Mar Nevuchim mentions Eretz Yisrael only one time in the entire Mar Nevuchim. Rabbeinu Bachia ibn Pakuda mentions Eretz Yisrael not even once in the entire Chayvah Savavais. Even the Ramban, who is a great lover of Eretz Yisrael, speaks about Eretz Yisrael merely in a halachic sense. However, Rabbi Yudah Levi expresses his passion in a poetic literary style. So Rabbi Yudah Levi is Mekoyinein in his famous Kinah, Miyasali Knafayim, Va'archik Nedoid, who shall make me wings so I may wander far away. Onid Levisri Levavi, I would cause my shattered heart to wander. Bain B'Sayrayach. What does Rabbi Yudah Levi mean, who could make me wings? He is clearly echoing the words of the greatest lover of Eretz Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu himself, who in Dvarim Rabbah we read that Moshe Rabbeinu when Hashem tells him to go and look at Eretz Yisrael, but you won't be able to enter. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, if I can't enter as a human, please allow me to enter as a wild animal, as a chaya, who eats the grass and drinks the water. And the Rebbe Hashem says, Rav Lach, Amar Lafan of Rebbe Shalaylam, V'im Lav, Hinei Oisi Boil Mazek Make me like a bird and I'll fly through Eretz Yisrael. Comes of Moshe Feinstein, Zechatzag Levrach, where Moshe asks, you know, the Gemara in Soito says that Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to Eretz Yisrael to Mekayim, the mitzvahs Hatzluyos Ba'aretz. But if Moshe Rabbeinu would have entered as a bird, it's very hard to Mekayim, Shemitah, Chumas Masras as a bird. Says Rav Moshe, we see from here the great spiritual benefit of merely being in Eretz Yisrael even without the opportunity to Mekayim mitzvahs. What is the benefit of being in Eretz Yisrael? Says Rabbi Yudah HaLevi. Apil la'ape alei artseich. I will fall on my face. Ve'artsa avoinayich l'moed. I would cherish your stones greatly. Ve'achoinein asafaroch. I would favor your dust. Even the stones, the rocks of Eretz Yisrael are endowed with desirable qualities. This is a, this is a reference to the practice of Rabbi Abba who would kiss the stones of Akko. Soon we're going to read Parshas Vaz Hanan. And Moshe Rabbeinu was Mesfalel. Please allow me to cross. So one of the great Rishonim, Panech Raza, one of the masters of the secrets of the Torah, he says, what was Moshe's Tefillah Ebra? Noah's Gematria 51. The Yardane, Jordan, <coughs> was... <laughs> the Jordan River is 50 Amos wide. Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, Ebrana, please allow me to enter one Amma into the land of Israel. Okay, so who got the first clue? Okay, anyway, what gives the dust of Eretz Yisrael their special quality? Now listen to this. Why is the dirt of Eretz Yisrael holy? Says Rabbi Yudah Levi, Af ki ba'omdi alei kivroi savoisai. Even when I stand by the burial spots of my forefathers in Chevroin, or Harho Avarim, raise your hands if you've ever been at the Kever of Aaron Akoyen. Oh, you've never been to Aaron Akoyen? Did you know that the reason why Eretz Yisrael has Kedusha, says Rabbi Huda Levi, 
is because Aaron HaKoyin is buried in Eretz Yisrael. That means the kever of Aaron HaKoyin is the epicenter of Kedushas Eretz Yisrael. So imagine if you could go to the kever of Aaron HaKoyin. If all the Kedush of Eretz Yisrael is emanating from the kever of Aaron HaKoyin, imagine if you could go to the kever of Aaron HaKoyin. So you could join with Nassim Weldler and others at the kever, I mean, um, at the kever of Aaron HaKoyin. Uh, an upcoming Avir trips. Asher Sham Shnei Urim Gedolim Oirayach Umayrayach. Two great lights, Moshe and Aaron. Now, Rabbi Huda Levi is introducing the principle that the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael comes from the fact that the graves of our ancestors are in Eretz Yisrael. We find this in Sefer Nechemia. When Eretz Yisrael and Yishalayim lay desolate, Nechemia comes before the king of Paras. And he requests permission to go up to Eretz Yisrael. When the king asked, why, are, why do you look so dejected? The king wants to know Nehemiah. He says, Nehemiah, it's not right that you come in front of me so dejected. Nehemiah says, Asher ha'ir beis chareva. Look, the city where our forefathers are buried is destroyed. From here we see the Kivrei Sadikim in Eretz Yisrael endow Eretz Yisrael with great Kedusha. Now, Rabbi Huda Levi pens his most stirring words. The life of the soul. Avir. Arzeich. The air of your land. Rabbi Huda Levi says, merely bringing, breathing in the Avir of Eretz Yisrael. So if you've ever gone on an Avir trip, imagine if you could go on an Avir trip from Eretz Yisrael to the sources of Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. I think people are sleeping. That's what it seems like. Or they just don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Okay. Now, the idea that the air of Eretz Yisrael sustains the soul is developed by Rabbi Dalevi in great detail in the Sefer Kuzari. He says that just like the body requires oxygen, the soul requires spiritual air. In the land of Israel, when you breathe in the air, it's an extremely spiritually potent subject, su- uh, substance. Says Rabbi, Rabbi Avram Azulai. Who's Rabbi Avram Azulai? The great, great grandfather of the Chida. He writes, Avir Eretz Yisrael, hu tahar hamuchan lekedusha v'la'avoydas Hashem. And therefore, v'lachin hashchina meshachenes ba'avir Eretz Yisrael. In fact, says the Chesed Avram, that is why we call the air of Eretz Yisrael Avir. Avir is Rashi Tevois. Avi didn't even know this. Avir. Or Hashem. Or Hashem. Or Yud. Or Hashem. That's why it's called Avir. And that is why Chazal say Avira the Ara Machgim. Now, what? Maze? Now, Aleph, Vav, Yud, Reish, Or Hashem. Okay. It's well, it's well known, the Chazonish commented that he had extra siyata deshmaya when he came to Eretz Yisrael, that in his learning that he never experienced anywhere else. So, Yudal Levi's greatest contribution to the world of Torah literature is the Kuzari. Kuzari describes the quest of the king of the Khazars to determine 
the true religion by questioning a Christian, a Muslim, and a Jewish scholar. The king was finally convinced of the authenticity of Judaism, which he embraced together with his whole kingdom. However, the king of the Khazars taunts the Jewish scholar because even though the Jewish people pray daily for their return to Tzion, says the king of the Khazars, it's insincere lip service. You chirp it like a bird. Every day you say, However, You chirp the words like a bird. We don't even think about what we're saying. But are you ready for this? Says the Kuzari. If we would prepare ourselves in the land of Israel wholeheartedly with a desirous soul then we would achieve what the Jewish people achieved in Mitzrayim namely the Geula Shalema and the author of the Kuzari took his words to heart he set out for the land of, that he, he yearned for and tradition has it that he reached Damascus he faced Sion and in Sion he said the Kinnah Many historians believe that Rabbi Huda Levi only got as far as Egypt. Raise your hand if you've ever been in Egypt. Which means you have to view yourself as if you were first in Mitzrayim. What was that? But many historians believe Rabbi Yudalev only made it as far as Egypt. But Rabbi Gedalia ibn Yahya, the Shashos HaKabalah, says that, in fact, Rabbi Yudalevi reached Yerushalayim, where he fell to the ground. He embraced the dust in fulfillment of Kiratsu avadecha es avaneha v'es afara yichanenu. And as he was kissing the dust of Yerushalayim, he was trampled and killed by an Arab horseman. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, born in... 1080, right here in Toledo. Okay, good evening everyone. I would like to discuss another great Rishon, another great Torah personality that passed away in Barcelona, Spain, was born in 1290, and passed away in Barcelona in 1375. So he had exceptional Arichas Yamim, especially for that age. He lived till 85 years. Rabbeinu Nisim Ben Ruven, the Ran. The Ran. He was the Rav in Barcelona, and he was the foremost rabbinical authority of his time. He received Sheilois from France, Italy, Africa, even Eretz Yisrael. However, how many Chuvois of the Ran were published? That's a little trivia question for you. I'm going to give you a hint. It was the channel that that tour guide's uh, drushas were on. 77. 77 too. That's why everybody wants to know why on channel 77 you couldn't hear a word anyway. It's so this way you'll remember how many chuvas of the Ran were published. Now the Ran wrote a very extensive commentary on the Rif. Tomorrow we're going to the cover of the Rif. The Ran also wrote on many Mesechtais. The one that we have the full edition of on the side of the page is Meseches Nedarim. However, the Chidushe Haran on Masech Shabbos 
is probably a Talmud of the Ran. The Chidushe Haritva on Masech the Shabbos is the Ran. Okay, so the Ritva on Shabbos is the Ran. The Ran on Shabbos is the Talmud of the Ran. Recently, the Ran on Pesachim Oyed Katan and Baba Basra has surfaced. The Ran began writing a parish on Chumash and he passed away before it was completed. The Ran, following in the derech of the Sephardic giants, also wrote on Machsheves Yisrael, somewhat philosophy, known as the Drushas Haran. The Ran writes something very powerful in his Drushas. He says, someone whose kavona is to be mistabek to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Even when he's involved in secular activities, he's serving Hashem, avoid the Gemura. But someone who is not mistabek to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even when he's learning Torah, is not serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, now I want to share with you an amazing insight of the Ran. Everybody knows Miriam speaks Lashon Harab and Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of Baha'u'llah and Hashem comes to them and He says, Go out, Moshe, Aaron, Miriam. And then Hashem only speaks to Aaron and Miriam. He doesn't speak to Moshe. So why does He tell Moshe to stand near Aaron and Miriam? So the Ran says a wondrous insight. The Ran says, The greatness of the Tzaddik, of the Gadol, is that Lahavdal Elf Alfea Avdalis, a Gadol Yisrael creates a Wi Fi zone so that anybody who's near the Gadol also gets transmission of Chachma, of Kedusha. So Hashem didn't speak to Aaron and Miriam at will, but Hashem did speak to Moshe at will. Now Hashem has to suddenly come to Miriam and Aaron. They didn't have the spiritual Wi Fi connection that Hashem is just going to come to them. So what does Hashem do? He says, Moshe, stand there. Moshe establishes the connection. And then once he's standing there, Hashem can now come and speak to Miriam and Aaron. But the Ran takes this further. Says the Ran, this is the idea of davening at Kivrei Tzadikim. Says the Ran, you don't daven to the Tzadik. The idea is that during the lifetime of the Tzadik, the body of the Tzadik was like a Wi-Fi zone of Shefa of Chachma. So even after the demise of the tzaddik, the body of the tzaddik is still a zone of transmission of shefa, of chachma and kedusha, even la'achar misasam. So those who are mishtatech, those who go to be mispalel by the tzaddik, they're able to tap in to the tzaddik as a, if you were, a hotspot of kedusha and chachma, even after misasam, says around, that's the Indian of davening by now, when we were at the Jewish Museum in Toledo, somebody pointed out that another one of the great Chachamim that was in Spain was the Rivash. The Rivash was one of the great Talmidim of the Ran. The Rivash writes in Simon Shin Ayin Hay. We know what's a Talmud Chacham? Someone who you can ask him halacha b'chol makayim, even in Masech Kala, and he can answer, he is a Talmud Chacham. Says the Rivash, we no longer have Tamidei Chachamim. Lulei Hashem Tzavakois, Hoiserlanu Sarid. One great Talmud Chacham is still with us. Who is that? Meirenu Harav Hagadal, Rabbeinu Nisim, Nun Reish. Anybody know what does Nun Reish stand for? Notre Rachmana, may the merciful one. Watch over him. Nun Reish, Nache Rachmana. 
says the Rivash, the one tzaddik we still have, Ladas, Tuv Tamadas, Baki Svarim, the Dumulay command the Manchi Bekiste, his Torah is like in his back pocket, Sichloi Zach Vyashar, Eina Roichaila, Bechalchachme Yisrael. Who is that? Rabbeinu Nisim Ben Ruvain, the Ran, Zuchusai, Yagen Oleinu. Okay, good morning everyone. Who's having a good time? Yay! Okay, you know, a lot of people are wondering why the people in the front of the bus keep calling me by the first, my first name and why they have preferential treatment. And other, some people ask, can we call you by your first name? I don't mind, you can call me by my first name, but who are these people calling me by my first name? And then other people want to know why I'm calling the people behind me Daddy and Mommy. <laughs> Now, these are two very big mysteries, but putting the two questions together in the same context, I'm giving you a a few clues, maybe they'll help you uh, understand this mystery. Okay, yesterday somebody asked me, did I speak about the Abarbanel yet? No, I didn't speak about the Abarbanel yet, but we're going to speak about him uh, right now. Um, Just by way of introduction, one of the great works of the Abarbanel is called Rosh Amana. Rosh Amana is a commentary on the Rambam's Yud Gimel Ikrim. And the Abarbanel asks a stunning question on the Rambam. The Abarbanel asks, the Rambam seems to have omitted the most important principle of Jewish faith, which is not included in the Yud Gimel Ikrim. And that is creation ex nihilo. That Hashem created the world, yesh ayin. This is conspicuously absent from the Rambam. Ikr number one. Animamin be'amunah shalema shabar Yisrael shemayhu boireyu manheg. Nothing about b'riyas ha'olam yishmeayin. Ikr number two. Animamin be'amunah shalema shabar Yisrael shemayhu yachid. Nothing about creation ex nihilo. Ikr number three. Animamin be'amunah shalema shabar Yisrael shemayhu enoi guf. And why does the Rambam not mention creation as one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim. And to compound the question, the Rambam in the Mar Nevuchim, in Chilak Beis Perak Lamed, the Rambam says, Kvar hoi daticha, she yisoid ha kula, hu shashem himtsi es ha'olam loimi davar. Ask the Abarbanel, why did the Rambam omit Bria ha'olam yeshmeayin? Says the Abarbanel, the Rambam, in fact, did include Bria ha'olam yeshmeayin I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's part of Iker number one. No, says Abarbanel. It's Iker number four. That the Almighty was first. The eternity of Hashem, says Abarbanel. Or as the Ramam says in his Akdama Techelek, Kadmoin. That emphasizes that Hashem is first in relation to everything else that exists. Nothing else in existence is bilti kadmain be'erkayelav. Is nothing in existence is not a prior existence compared to Him. Everything else was created by a pre-existing Creator. This is the chiddush of the Abarbanel that Briyas ha'olam yesh is included in Iker number four. What's amazing is how perfectly the Abarbanel arrived at the true meaning of the words of the Rambam. 
Because many centuries after the Adab Arbanel, in our times, a original manuscript of the Rambam's Yud Gimel Ikram was discovered. In this manuscript, we, we have a Haggah. We have a textual amendation with the handwriting of the Rambam himself. And at the side of the fourth Ikr, the Rambam writes in his handwriting, Veda ki yisoid hagadol shel Torah Shabinu hu yihayois ha'oila mechudosh Yitzray Hashem ubaroi achar ha'heder ha'mechlad That included in Ikr number four is the concept of Brias ha'olam yesh me'ayin. And in the new critical editions of the Parish HaMishnah, the Rambam, Rabbi Yosef Kapach, published by Mossad Rav Kook in 1965, it confirms that the Abarbanel was spot on in his interpretation of the Rambam in the Yud Gimel Ikram. We're here at the Alhambra, okay? How is that? And I want to just explain a little bit of uh, the Jewish significance. Before that, we have to know of one of the great Jewish personalities of all time, Rav Shmuel Hanagid. Rav Shmuel Hanagid was from the generation of the first Rishonim. Okay, this is very important. Who were the first three Rishonim? There's a lot of misconception about that. Some people say the Beis Yosef, the Barbanel. It was earlier. The first generation of Rishonim was A. Rav Shmuel Hanagid, B. Rav Nisim Goyin, C. Rabbeinu Hananel. These are the first three Rishonim. Shmuel Hanagid is born in Cordoba in 993. He starts off. He is educated in religious matters. He's educated in secular studies. He's a student of Rav Chanoich ben Rav Moshe. Rav Moshe was one of the Arba Shvuyim. His son was Rabbeinu Chanoich. Shema Nogid was his student. There's a civil war in Cordova in 1012. Suleiman was victorious. So Shmuel Hanogid has to run away. He comes to Malaga. So here's the story about how Rav Shmuel Hanogid rose in power. Shmuel Hanogid is a shopkeeper. And with many Rabbanim, they're very good statesmen, politician, but they can't make a buck. So, Shmuel Hanagid is an unsuccessful storekeeper, but he's a great writer. The visor is writing letters for the sultan. Shmuel Hanagid, meanwhile, the visor got, got wind that Shmuel Hanagid was a very good writer. So he used Shmuel Hanagid's skills. He took Shmuel Hanagid, he told Shmuel, you know, here he slipped him a few bucks, and Shmuel Hanagid secretly was the writer for the Sultan. The Sultan never knew. The visor is on his deathbed. The Sultan comes, the Sultan says, you know, Chaval al da'avdin it's Chaval, you're about to die, who's going to write for me? So the visor spills the beans, it wasn't me, it was Samuel Shmuel Hanogid. So Shmuel Hanogid is promoted, and now he becomes Hanogid, he becomes the great Nasi. There's a lot of jealousy from the Arabs that this Jew is rising up in power. Everyone calls him, the Jews call him Shmuel Hanogid, the Arabs call him Ibn Nagdila. Now, the king at the time was King Shabbos, Chabas. He dies in 1037. I know you can't imagine such a thing, but now there's contention among the two sons who should take over to be the king. Shmuel Hanogid sided with Badis, the older son, but he was a Das Yachid. Badis wrestles away control of the kingdom. And now Shmuel Hanogid is ascending in power because he's the only one who had the foresight that the Bukhar would be successful. He's appointed commander-in-chief of Granada. Shmuel Hanogid, he's commander-in-chief. He builds a palace. This area is the palace of Shmuel Hanogid. Badis is a self-indulgent king. He doesn't know if he's coming, he doesn't know if he's going. Shmuel Hanogid became the most 
powerful individual in this entire region, Shmuel Hanaged. In that capacity, he opens up a big Talmudic academy. He's very wealthy. He sends money to Bavel. He funds the Babylonian yeshivas of Sura and Pompadisa. He opens up a tremendous library. He writes Mavai HaTalmud. He wrote a work called Hilchasa Gevurta. And he becomes the first generation of all the Rishon. He was a very tolerant person. Here we'll conclude with one story. Before he rose to great power, and he's writing for the Sultan, somebody, one of the Arabs, once insulted Shmuel Hanagid. So the, the Sultan said, I give you permission, cut off his tongue. Shmuel Hanagid said, I will do that. A little while later, they're passing by the Arab's house, and the Arab comes running out, and he heaps praise on Shmuel Hanagid. And the Sultan says, I thought I told you to cut off his tongue. And Shmuel Hanagid said, I did. I sent him a gift and his bad tongue was transformed to a good tongue. So indeed, I did cut off his tongue. Now, he fought all the wars as general commander-in-chief of the Granadan force. But from the battlefield, he always sent messages to his children, sending them lessons, inquiring about what they're learning. He was also a paragon educator and father. His son takes over, Rav Yehoisif Hanaged. Yehoisif Hanaged. Now, Yehoisif Hanaged marries the daughter of Rabbeinu Nisim. So now Shmuel Hanaged and Rabbeinu Nisim are mechutanim. Yeah? You look on the side of every Gemara, especially Brachais, you have the comments of Rav Nisim Gain. So they're not only mechutanim, they're mechutanim in the Gemara. Because in Masechta Brachais, you have Rav Nisim Gain, and in the back of the Masechta, Rav Shmuel Hanaged. So you know, when you become mechutanim, you become connected in ways you never would have thought imaginable. <laughs> so... Yehoisif Hanagid is as wise as his father. His problem was he grew up in wealth. So he never learned the political skill of how to defuse his enemies and those who were jealous of him. Shmuel Hanagid started off poor. So he was always sensitive. Maybe people are jealous of him. The son grew up in wealth. And therefore he had many enemies. One day the Arabs got so angry, they stormed his house on Shabbos. They brutally murdered him. And uh, now... He has an Amana, he has a Yasaim, and they run off, and they run to Lucina, where we're headed. Okay? They run up to Lucina. In Lucina is Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Giyas. He wants to groom Azariah, the son of Yehoshaphat Hanagid, to be the next leader of Klal Yisrael. They had a lot of hope for him. Nebuch, this boy, died at 12 years old, and that was the end of the dynasty of the Hanagid family. So this is the... A purported area of the actual palace of the most prominent Jew, perhaps in the last 1,000 years, Rav Shmuel Hanagar. Good historical areas in the world for the Jewish people because in the last 1,000 years, probably the two most momentous events that affect our lives occurred right here in this room. The first one is the signing of the Inquisition that happened in April 1492. Just a little background. Let's look at it through the prism of the life of Abarbanel. Abarbanel was born in the year 1438. Abarbanel starts off as the finance minister of King Alfonso of Portugal. Alfonso dies. His son takes over King Wajo, Jose. Jose assassinates all of his father's advisors. He summons Abarbanel to the palace. He says, I need your advice. Abarbanel knew advice meant, I need to cut off your head. So Abarbanel runs away to Spain. He rises up in power. He starts off anonymous. Nobody knew who he was, which is a good thing for a rabbi. But then 
Fernand got wind of who that Barbanel was. He becomes the finance minister of Spain. Now, during this time, there was a historic union between Ferdinand and Isabella, who were leaders of two areas of Spain. They marry each other. They unite with the goal of something called Reconquesta, to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula from Arab, from Muslim rule. Muslims conquer the Iberian Peninsula in 711. They come back. They're almost finished reconquest. 1487, they conquer Malaga. January 2nd, 1492, they conquer Granada. That was one of the most important military victories in the history of the world. They say, How could we ever thank God enough for conquering Malaga other than to bring those backward, dirty, confused Jews to the true religion? They sign in this room the Spanish Inquisition. Like our guide told us, in this room, Ferdinand and Isabella also received Christopher Columbus and they signed his expedition to discover the New World. We have a record that on August 2nd, 1492, Tishabav, the Barbanel writes, that Ferdinand and Isabella did not know that the Inquisition would go into effect on the most tragic day on the history of the Jewish calendar, which is Tishabav, the ninth day of Av. The first temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed. Ferdinand didn't know to put the Inquisition into effect on Tishabav. Abarbanel writes that it was orchestrated min hashamayim. It was heavenly directed. August 3rd, 1492, Christopher Columbus sets sail from the Nina, the Pinta, Santa Maria. He writes that as he's leaving the dock, he sees Jews leaving on boats, capping, capsized, screaming, crying. You know, you ever hear of the Lakewood Yeshiva? <laughs> Who founded the Lakewood Yeshiva? King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. If not for them, there would never be Jews in America. So look at the Hashgacha Pratis. They thought they were standing in this room and they were going to put an end to any future Jewish influence. But they were the ones who commissioned the discovery of America and the Lakewood Yeshiva. In Lakewood, there should be a big plaque. And there, by the way, there are plaques in Lakewood. It should say, King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella, donated the Lakewood Yeshiva on August 2nd, 1492. These are the two seminal events and they both transpired here in this room. The signing of the Inquisition and the commission of Christopher Columbus. They were both signed in April. They both went into effect August 2nd, the expulsion. August 3rd, the expedition of Christopher Columbus. Was he Jewish, Columbus? There's a lot of evidence that there were many Muranos on his boat, including his own background. I'll just tell you one thing. Um, many Jews... Uh, how many Jews were expelled in 1492? Very good. Modern uh, secular historians, they keep on um, dwindling down the number, 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 100,000, less than, Abarbanel writes, 300,000 Jews. But from that day and on, at least 30,000 Jews were burnt here at the stake in the auto de fe. The smell of burning flesh wafted throughout the country from that day on. Now the chief inquisitor was Turkamada, who he himself had Jewish blood. Of course he did. Thank you very much. And Turkamada, before he became the chief inquisitor, was the grand confessor, Isabella's grand confessor. So he was already prov proven now. 
Abarbanel comes to Ferdinand and Isabel. He says, don't do it. Don't sign the Inquisition. You can't sign. You're going to lose your brightest minds, your most talented people. He begged them. He begged. He says, what is it? Is it money? I will pay a hefty sum for every Jew. And they were about to relent. When Turkamada came running into this room, waving a cross, ranting and raving that they're going to burn in a very hot place. A very hot place. Hotter than this room. <laughs> and he scared the living daylights out of Fernand and Isabella. And they asked Abarbanel to step out. And they signed the edict. So that's where we're standing in this room. This represents Chorben Beis HaMikdash and represents the ultimate renaissance of the rebuilding of Torah throughout the world. And like the, and like the Mishnah tells us in Pirkei Avais, the world was created with ten statements. So the Mishnah asks, why do we need ten statements? To give reward for the tzaddikim who uphold the world, which was created with ten statements. The Ramam says the whole world is created even for one tzaddik who does one good deed. The Ramam says a palace could stand for a, a thousand years just because one time a Talmud Chacham needs to sit down in the shade and learn one Dvar Torah and that was the whole purpose of the whole palace for a thousand years. So here we are, we just gave an uh, objective and a purpose for this palace. It's been waiting for us to come for almost a thousand years just to say one Dvar Torah. What's going to be after this moment? There are no guarantees. But at least now, this palace has fulfilled its uh, objective purpose. <laughs> Okay, good afternoon everyone. Um, we're headed to the kever of the Rif. Now, the, we don't know the exact location of where the Rif's kever is, but we know the general uh, Beis Achayim, and this was something that was discovered recently. So it was brought to my attention the following question. We know there's a mitzvah in the Torah of Uvay Sidbak. So my good friend, Rabbi Eliezer Srolowitz, asked the following Shaila. We know that there's a mitzvah in the Torah to associate with Talmidei Chachamim, to eat with Talmidei Chachamim, to speak to Talmidei Chachamim, to marry off one's daughter to a Talmud Chacham. It's a mitzvah da'irai, so uvoi sidbak, to cling to Hashem. The Gemara asks, how can a person cling to Hashem? But Hashem is eish oichla, he's an all-consuming fire. So the Gemara says, histabek b'tamidei Chachamim. So the question is, is one considered clinging to Tamidei Chachamim by speaking about Sadiqim, saying over stories of Sadiqim, by listening to stories of Sadiqim, by going to Kivrei Sadiqim, is it considered clinging to Tamidei Chachamim? <coughs> so, in my humble opinion, that in fact, it would not be considered clinging to Tamidei Chachamim, because clinging to, to Tamidei Chachamim means associating with the living tzaddikim. However, I do think that by speaking to, about tzaddikim and going to the kvarim, there is another mitzvah da'iraisa that one is mekayim. Let's go back to very important comments of Rabbeinu Yoyna and the Shari Tshuva. Rabbeinu Yoyna, we mentioned the beginning of this, but then we got to uh, stop. Rabbeinu Yoyna and the Shari Tshuva and the Shari Gimel, Ois Yadalit, speaks about a common error that many people think that the main corruption of soul is only if somebody violates a love. Somebody does an Avera, so then it causes a certain hashchasa of the neshama. But if somebody just fails to observe a mitzvah, mitzvah saseh, 
then okay, they don't get the schar, they don't get the positive achievement, but it will not cause in any way any type of hashchasa. However, Rabbi Yonah says that this is a big error. Rabbi Yonah says in the Shari Tshuva that HaKadosh Baruch is willing to overlook even the severest Averos, Avedazara, Gilei Arayos, Shvichas Damim, but is not willing to overlook the fulfillment of the great mitzvah of Talmud Torah. And then Rabbi Yonah drops a bombshell. And I want to speak out one very important line of Rabbi Yonah and bring it to your attention and perhaps shed some light on this mysterious comment of Rabbi Yonah. Says Rabbi Yonah, the greatest elevated status in Yiddishkeit are achieved by fulfilling mitzvah saseh. Now I want to share with you some of the examples of the Mailos Ho'al Yoynos that are given by mitzvah saseh. Rabbi Yoynos says, Bitachoin, Shleimus Habitachoin, Shenemar, Tamim Tiem, Hashem Kacha. Contemplating the greatness of Hashem, like it says, Rabbi Yonah says the Maila of Kedusha, like it says, the Hiskadishtem, Malas Hayira, as Hashem Lekachatira. What is the first Maila Hel Yonah that Rabbi Yonah talks about? Rabbi Yonah says Maila number two is Maila's Talmud Torah, Shenemar Vidibartabam. Maila number three is going in the ways of Hashem Shenemar Halachta Bidrachav. Now, if it were up to me, I would have thought Maila number one would be Maila's Talmud Torah because the greatest mitzvah in the Torah is Talmud Torah. Talmud Torah Kineged Kulam. I would have put that as Maila number one. And Maila number two I would have put as Chesed Halachta Bidrachav. After all, we know the comments of the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim tells us on the Gemara and Shabbos that children entered the base Medrash and they taught something that was not taught even in the days of Yehoshua ben Nun. What did they teach? They darshan the Aleph Beis. Shabbos Kuftalit, Aleph Beis, Aleph Bina. Gimel Dalit, Gimel Dalim. Says the Chafetz Chaim, if these two mitzvahs are marumas in the beginning of the Aleph Beis, that teaches that these two mitzvahs are the two most important mitzvahs. Number one, Aleph Beis, Aleph Bina. Number two, Gimel Dalet, Gimel Dalim. And yet, Rabbi Yoyna lists Talmud Torah and Gemilas Chesed as Maila number two and Maila number three. Drum roll, please. What is the first Maila Ho'el Yoyna that is Nimsar, the Mitzvah Saseh, says Rabbi Yoyna, Mailois Habichira, Shenemar Uvacharta Bachayim. The first Maila is the Maila of Bechira. Like it says, Uvacharta Bechayim. Question What is Maila's Habachira? Bechira is not a mitzvah saseh, is not a Maila Ho'al Yoyna. Bechira is a concept. There's a concept that we have free choice. What does Rabbeinu Yoyna mean? That it's a Maila Ho'al Yoyna, the Maila of Bechira, and why would this Maila be? Maila number one, even more important than Talmud Torah, even more important than Gemilas Chasadim. This is a question that many commentaries of the Shari Tshuva grapple with. What does Rabbeinu Yoyna mean? Mailas Habachira. And I was thinking about this question for a very long time until I saw another Sefer of Rabbeinu Yoyna, the Shari Ho'avoida. 
And in Sharei Ho'avoida, written also by Rabbeinu Yoyna, Rabbeinu Yoyna talks about the great mitzvah of Bechira. You would think, what do you mean, Bechira is a mitzvah? How is Bechira a mitzvah? It's a concept that's true. What are you supposed to do in the mitzvah of Bechira? Says Rabbeinu Yoyna in the Sharei Ho'avoida. You ready for this? Says Rabbeinu Yoyna that a person needs to always think about how he can serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu with all of his heart and all of his soul in order to achieve the Maila of the greatest people who ever lived Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, David Ushloimai they also only served Hashem according to their, their ability and a person should think, you know, to be wealthy, to be honorable it requires all of one's energy. Certainly to achieve the Maila of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Says Rabbi Yoyna, don't slacken off even for a moment. Every day strengthen yourself from Mida to Mida, from Madrega to Madrega. Desire, Yachmoid, yearn, Yichsaif, to achieve in Avodas Hashem what's beyond your capabilities. You hear what Rabbeinu Yonah is saying? That there's an obligation for a person to yearn and aspire to madregois that are above and beyond their na- one's natural ability. And the way to achieve that is by associating with Talmidei Chachamim. And if you choose this path, you're Mekayim a mitzvah. And not only that, you'll get schar as if you achieve that madrega. Shenemar uvacharta b'chayim ki habechira mitzvah sasei. Shenemar uvacharta b'chayim. Rabbi Yoyna is dropping a great revelation that before you even begin to learn and before you even begin to do mitzvahs, the most fundamental obligation of a Jew is to aspire to reach madregos that are above and beyond one's capability. And the way of doing that is associating with Tamid Chachamim. So now we learn a great idea. And that is, before even the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, before even the mitzvah of the Halach de Bidrachav, is the great ideal and principle to be choymed, to desire, to be yichsoif, to yearn for great madrego in Avodas Hashem. And this is the Madrega, and this is the Midah of Uvacharta Bachayim. Comes Rabbeinu Yoyna, and Rabbeinu Yoyna writes in the Shari Tshuva that actually, does anybody know, what is the greatest Zuchus available in this world? You want to hear something? Says Rabbeinu Yoyna, the greatest Zuchus in this world is to praise Talmidei Chachamim. Greater than Talmud Torah, greater than Chesed. The zechus of praising Tamecham says Rabbi Yehuda. What's so important about praising Tamecham? Many people have a favorite pastime of disparaging Tamei Chachamim, which is actually the most serious offense in the whole Torah. The greatest zechus in the Torah is to praise Tamei Chachamim, and Rabbi Yehuda gives three reasons for that. Number one, that if you praise Tamil Chachamim, people will honor them and then listen to them. Number two, when people see the honor being given to Tamil Chachamim, 
people will aspire to be like them and there'll be more knowledge, there'll be more das and they'll mitoch shaloy l'shma b'lishma. And ultimately, Rabbeinu Yonah says, when people see that Tamid Chachamim are praised, it will st- stir their hearts. It will awaken them from their slumber to try to learn Torah, and ultimately they'll learn Torah Lishma. But says Rabbeinu Yonah, none of the above reasons are the reason why it is so important to praise Tamid Chachamim. Says Rabbeinu Yonah, the most important objective of a Jew in this world is to honor HaKadosh Baruch Hu. How do we honor HaKadosh Baruch Hu? By showing with every word we say, with every movement we make, with every movement of the eye, with every gesticulation that we have, that the purpose of this world is to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Because the more we proclaim that the purpose of life is serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it brings Kavay to Hashem. And if one is Mavaza Tamil Chacham, they are undermining that the purpose of existence is serving Hashem. When people praise Ashirim, when people praise honorable people, then they're saying there's something more important in this world than serving Hashem. However, we know that the Tachlis Habriya is Kal Ma Shabara HaKadosh Baruch Hu Laibara but when a person is sitting among other people, he should make it his business to be Mekade Shem Shamayim, Ule Daber Beshavach Avoidasai, Ule Shabeach Avodav, Viyireav, says Rabbeinu Yaina. If someone is sitting among other people and they praise Tamide Chachamim, Yizke Bazer Bihigayon Libai, Umifta Sefasav, one will be Zoicha with his thoughts and his articulation, without much effort. There are many people that do good things in this world. They learn a lot of Torah, but they haven't been Zoycha to the biggest Zuchus of all. Yeah, that Talmud Chacham, yeah. He's not really that big of a Talmud Chacham. He doesn't really know Taisus. That Talmud Chacham, eh. The biggest zuchus available in this world is to praise Tamid Chachamim. One who does so, he's koine zuchus gedoy la'ad l'shamayim kizeh me'ikare yitzirat ha'adam. Says Rabbeinu Yoyna, you could have somebody, he's an avarian, he doesn't do mitzvahs, he doesn't keep the Torah, he slackens off in all 612. But if he praises Talmidei Chachamim, he belongs to the winning team. It doesn't matter what he does in his personal life. Says Rabbeinu Yoyna, who may adas Hashem. And you know what we see? Yesh Shoyresh Bebechira. This also enlightens us as to what the definition of Bechira is. Someone who praises Talmidei Chachamim, he shows what his aspirations are, what his values are. However, someone who praises Rishayim, he's a Rasha Gamor, even if he keeps all 613 mitzvahs. So this is the biggest side of Rabbeinu Yaina. 
And what we're learning is more important than Yer HaShemayim and more important than Kedusha and more important than Segulais and more important than Chesed and more important than Taira is to praise Tamid HaChachamim. So when you go and you hear the praise even of Tzadikim who are no longer alive or you go to their Kvarim the Iker Kavana should be that we're going to be mechabed those individuals who dedicated their life for Torah, Avoid and Gmas Chasadim, and therefore by spending time traveling in over a hundred degrees, you realize what you're doing? You traveled hours just to be able to go to the Rif because the Rif dedicated his life to the Talmud Bavli and to the promotion and dissemination of Torah. So that is the greatest Kiddush Hashem. And that is the chus gedoyla adla shamayim. And in that merit, all of our tefillos should be neskavel barachimim of ratzayin. Every bead of sweat, every degree over a hundred that you endured to go to these kvarim will be oimed for you. Lenetzach netzachim. And all your tefillos should be neskavel for Yeshuais, nechamais, parnasa, zivugim toivim, vimali Hashem, kalmashalas libcham letoivim. Okay, friends, we're here, we're in Lucina, Lucina, Spain. This is the city of the Rif, Rabbeinu Yitzchak, Hakoyen, the Rif. Now we know that the Rif is one of the main backbone of Halacha. The, uh, the approach of the Beis Yosef is he takes two out of three, the Rambam, the Rif, and the Rush. But the truth is, it's mostly the Rif. Because Kemat, everything the Rambam says is the same as the Rif. The Rambam even writes that he can't even find 10 things that the Rif ever said that he would possibly challenge. So let's speak a little bit about the Rif's approach to Halacha. Again, the Rif is the, the uh, foundation of all Halacha. I want to share with you a Rif at the end of Masech the Erevin. So Halacha is Klishir, our Asr on Shabbos. You're now to sound musical instruments on Shabbos. The Shaila is, we just went down there to, to get a Pesach, to be Zoycha, to go to the Rif. Now I understand why we had a knock on the door. Oh, it was... The hashkacha that we, we, didn't, we didn't get in right away. Because the Rif has a Shiloh. Why should it be that all these houses around here, right? how do you knock on the door? You, you can't don't go up knock like this. They have a big metal thing, you, you know, a knocker. The Shiloh is, are you allowed to make noise if it's not the Derech Shir? That's one of the big Yisoyedists of the Rif. So it's the Machloikis, the Bavli, and the Yushalmi. The Bavli says, you're allowed to use a knocker on Shabbos because it's not B'derach Shir. The Yushalmi says it's Asr. Says the Rif, many Chachamim, what he refers to is, Rabbeinu Hanan will say, you're not allowed to use a knocker on Shabbos. But the Rif says that it's a mistake. Va'anan lo lan hachi. We don't pass like Rabbeinu Hanan. We hold, you're allowed to use a knocker on Shabbos. Why? De kivon, de sugion, de gemara, de lan Since the Babli says you're allowed to use a knocker. Lo yichbat lan b'may da'asri b'gemara de b'nei marava. We don't care about the Yushami. Why? Da gemara de lan samchinan. De basrahi. The Babli came last. Ve'inu havi b'ki b'gemara de b'nei marava t'feminan. The Bavli, the Bavlam, knew the Yushalmi better than you, even though you have art scroll. Still, the Bavlam knew the Yushalmi better. If the Bavli didn't hold that the Yushalmi was incorrect, the Bavli would not have allowed it. So therefore, the Hashkoch is around the Rif's kever. There are knockers everywhere. Why? Because according to the Rif, you're allowed to use a knocker 
on Shabbos. So that's already one hashgacha. Otherwise, if we would have gotten in right away, you would not remember this machlokes bavli yishami. Now, for the rest of your life, you're going to think about the kever of the riff, all the knockers. They're very nice knockers. You should take pictures. Go to Coney Island Avenue. Ask them to order the knockers of Lucina, Spain. I'm going to tell you another thing about the kever of the riff. The riff was so great in halacha, you could learn something out from the nusach of his matseva. There's a story in Hungary in the 19th century where there's a family who put, as part of the text of the kever, they wrote the name of Hashem on the kever. And the rav of the kehila forbid it, and the family persisted, and they put the name of Hashem on the kever, and lo and behold, they go for the hakamas matseva, the matseva cracks in half. So the Rav says, you see, obviously, you know, I'm correct. Says the Chsam Soifer, the Rav was dead wrong. Chsam Soifer, Likutei Tshuva, Yitzchosha Mishvat, Simen Hey. It's irrelevant what Simanim and Hashemayim take place. Hashem wanted the covet of the Rav to be intact, so he had the kever break in half. But the Rav was still wrong. How do we know the Rav is wrong? Says the Chsam Soifer, why didn't the Rav know the Nusach of the Matzeva of the Rif? And if you ask, how is any Rav supposed to know the Nusach of the if you can't even get into the cemetery? The answer is, if you look at the end of Masech Brachas, it's printed the Nusach of the Matseva of the Rif. Who? Who, who wrote the Nusach of the Matseva? Rav Moshe ben Ezra and Rabbi Huda Halevi, the author of the Kuzari. And on the Nusach of the Matseva of the Rif, it says... The name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, three times. Elohim, Shakai, Kel. Says Achsam Soifer, if on the foundation of Halacha, it says Hashem's name on his Matseva, we pass in your ladder, write the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu on a Matseva. I, the nace happened to the Rav. He needed a job, so Hashem uh, kept his covet. Which is a very important lesson. People say, oh, I went to someone and he made a nest, he made a face. All that shows is he needs a Parnasa. But that doesn't show anything more than that. Um, the Rabbi Yaakov Mimorosh. I want to say this by the kever, but let's just, uh, we'll say it here as well. He wrote a sefer called Shalsa Tshuvas Menashemayim. And he sent questions up to Shemayim. And on one occasion he asks, Who do we paskin like? Do we paskin like the Rif or other Rishonim? Menashemayim, they said, Vadai halacha kerif ki huchashiv ma'oid. Like the Pasuk says, Ve'es brisi akim es yitzchak. Hashem makes a covenant with the Rif. The halacha is like the Rif. So, Zuchusay Yagain Aleinu. By the way, the Tzayd Al-Adarach brings down that it would be humanly impossible for anyone to compile a sefer like the Rif if they did not have Ruach HaKodesh. So, the commentary of the Rif was written Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, Rabbi Sir, we're still here. Let's talk about some of the Mepharshim on the Rif. Does anybody know? Would you tell us that the story with Babli and uh, Yushami, that, that rule applies to all Yes, the that we always pass in, like the Babli over the Yushami. Yeah. yeah, now, I just want one last thing. We know how many Rishonim wrote Perushim on the Rif. The Chidah brings down their Lechol HaPachos, 12 Perushim on the Rif. Who knows? You have Rabbeinu Yohanan's son. A Gadol who lived in Gerona wrote a Perush on the Rif. Who? Rabbeinu Yohanan. Nimuke Yosef. Rabbi Huda Al-Madari. The Ritva wrote a Perush on the Rif. And Ma'ir Katan. Rabbeinu Yishmael. Rabbeinu Tam wrote a Perush on the Rif. Hagois on the Rif, like we see in the Smag. The Ran. The Rashbam wrote Hagois on the Rif. Rabbi Abba Mori Bar Yosef Hagois on the Rif. The Rav Ho'ita wrote Hagois on the Rif. So the Rif is the uh, foundation of Halacha. Zuchusai Yogi Nolino. Okay, Rabbi Yosef, back to the Rif. 
So the riff, uh, by the way, inside, there's no kever for the riff. There's no kever that says, here lies Rabbi Yitzhak el There's a plaque that says that in this area, we have a tradition, the riff is buried. So um, I want to speak a little bit about the riff. How did the riff get to Spain? The riff is not originally from Spain. The riff is from North Africa. Torah comes... Uh, uh, so Torah comes to North Africa in the year 990 with the episode of the Arba Shvuyim, the four captives. And one of the captives that was redeemed by Karuen was Rabbeinu Chushiel. Rabbeinu Chushiel is the father of... Hi, hola. Pause it, pause it. Okay, so right now, back, continuing with the riff, and this is a story that's developing as we speak. <laughs> this story is developing as we speak. This is live footage of the entrance to the cover of the riff. Okay, this is not uh, um, altered in any way. And um, we have the local police of the Spanish police that have been uh, very on the case. They say that in 10 minutes, the Jewish people will allow to be reunited with Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, the riff, back to the riff. So the riff is a Talmud of Rabbeinu Chushiel and together with Rabbeinu Nisim Goin. So Rabbeinu Nisim Goin is a Talmud of Rabbeinu Chushiel, excuse me. The riff is a Talmud of Rabbeinu Chanano. So let's just set the record straight. Rabbeinu Chushiel is one of the Arba Shvuyim. Okay, he comes to North Africa. His son is Rabbeinu Chananel. No, his son is Rabbeinu Chananel. And Rabbeinu Chananel teaches the riff. The Rif gets a job with the encouragement of Rabbeinu Hananel. What is his first position? He's the rabbi in Fez in Morocco. He is the towering figure in all of Morocco. How long is he a Rav in Morocco for? 40 years. So Rif is a Rav in Morocco for 40 years in Fez. We were just in Fez in the, in the winter. So the Rif was a, a rabbi there in Morocco. Now, he's called Rif, Rabbeinu Yitzchak al that's the Al-Fasi. So that's where the uh, riff comes from. The Miri says about the riff, he's God al We mentioned he must have had Ruach HaKodesh to be able to write this compilation. Says the Ravid. When I talk about the Ravid here, it's the Ravid the first. Ravid the first means not the Ravid Bal HaSagas on the Ramam. Ravid the first. The Ravid the first says that Miyamois Rav Haigoin, there was nobody like Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi. So how does he come to Spain? The story goes like this. The Rif was a Dayan. Coming into his Bezdin was the Caliph, a non-Jewish Caliph, versus an Ani. The Caliph was very powerful. The Rif ruled in favor of the Ani. The Caliph says, Really? You'll regret this. The Rif says, The Torah says, You can't be scared of nobody. I'm not afraid of you. The Caliph says, You'll regret this. So the Rif's Talmidim were scared for his life. They appoint guards at the entrance of the city, and sure enough, within a few days, a stampede comes into this. They say, Rabbi Yitzchak, run, run! He takes his ksavim, he takes his talis and tefillin, and he runs for his life. He makes it, crosses from Tangiers, he gets to Spain. The Rif is 75 years old at the time. Everybody knows that at age 75, you can't get a job anywhere. 
Certainly not in Rabbanos. You see, in Rabbanos, they want you to be in your 30s with 50 years experience. That's how it works in Rabbanos. So the Riff had this, the latter, but he was 75 years old. The Riff says, you take me here in Lucina, I'll be bar mitzvahed with you. The Riff was the Rav here in Lucina for 14 years. Who does he teach? Rimagash. Who else? His son, Rabbeinu Yaakov. Who else? Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. At the time of the Patira of the Riff, the Riff loved the Rimagash so much, and in something unusual, the Riff gave over the Nasios and the Rabbanos to the Rimagash over his son, which is something you see all the time, right? <laughs> Where the Moisad goes to the more deserving as opposed to in-house. So that's, uh, you see, the godless of the Riff. The Riff gave it over to Rabbi Yosef Magash, the Rimagash. Okay, so that's a little bit about the Riff. We mentioned that uh, the Shazashuzman HaShemayim invokes the Pasuk on the Riff as Brisi, Akim, as Yitzchak. Okay, should we talk about the Rimagash? Okay, we'll take a break. Okay, a word about the Rimagash. Rimagash is also buried in Lucina. Rimagash is the primary disciple of the Rif. Rimagash was born in Seville in 1077 and he passed away here in 1141. The Rimagash is the primary disciple of the Rif. We said the, the Rif gave over to Rimagash to be the Rosh Hashiva here in, in uh, Lucina. Now, this is very important. Many write that the Rambam was the Talmud of the Rimagash. The Rambam never learned from the Rimagash. The Chida brings a story in the Sefer Chadre Beten that at eight years old, the Rimagash on his deathbed called in the Rambam, whereupon the Rambam kissed the hands of the Rimagash. And the Rambam says that the mice of kissing the hands of the Rimagash is how he got all of his kayach in learning by kissing the hands of the Rimagash on his Yom HaPetira. And legend has it, the Rimagash says to the Rambam that he's going to illuminate the world in Torah. Now the Rimagash was like a child prodigy from uh, a very, very young age, and it was recognized, so his Rebbe told the father, you need to dedicate this child to learning. Now it's very interesting, there's a Pasuk in Kisavai coming up, by Vidoy Meiser, where we say, Loishachachti, what? Not Loishachachti, Ba'ini. What does Rashi say on Loishachachti? I didn't forget to make a bracha. So the Avnei Nezer asked, what do you mean I didn't forget to make a bracha? This is a Pasuk in Chumash. What bracha do you make? A bracha on Meiser? Brachas are Durabanan. How could you say that what the Pasuk means, I didn't forget to make a bracha, you can't learn Pshat in the Pasuk is bracha. That's the Kasha of Avnei Nezer. The Avnei Nezer says, is a raya to the Shita of the Rimagash. Rimagash writes in a tshuva, I believe Reish Gimel, that there is one bracha that's Dairaisa. And that is the bracha of Shechianu. Shechianu is a Dairaisa. Says Avnei Nezer, how could Shechianu be a Dairaisa? Because since, what? Since, you know, Birchas you mean? Not everybody holds it's Dairaisa. The Shagasari says Dairaisa. But there's one bracha, Rimagash says, I so why? Because the Pasuk says, which means it's a mitzvah to, to do mitzvah. So, that, what is, so, what does that tell you you have to do? The Torah doesn't say you have to have feelings. It must be, it's a, it's a maisa. What's the maisa of simcha? The maisa is, that's Pshan the Rimagash, that Shachiyonu is the Dairaisa. 
That's Pshan the Pasuk, Loishachachti, Rashi says, Milvarechacha, that's a riot to the Shita of the Rimagash, who again was the Rebbe of, not the Rambam, but the Rambam's father. So the transmission of Torah from Bavel to Rabbeinu Chushiel to Rabbeinu Chananel to Rabbi Yitzchak Alfasi to the Rimagash to Rabbeinu Maimon to Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon. That's the line of the Messiah from Bavel to the Rishonim here in Spain. Zuchusam Yagen Oleinu. Hi everyone. This will be our last uh, little presentation here in Spain. We had an amazing time. Thank you everybody for your participation and patience. And Bezos Hashem, we have an amazing day planned for tomorrow, Shabbos, Sunday and Monday. I want to conclude by telling you a story that happened in Tavshin Lamed Ches, 1978. Maran Ravavadi Yosef was invited by the Spanish Kehila to visit and inaugurate the yeshiva in Madrid. And in the context of this, context of this visit, Rebavadi was actually invited to meet King Juan Carlos, who reigned as King of Spain from 1975 to 2014, when he abdicated in favor of his son Felipe VI. Rebavadi had profound respect for King Juan Carlos, not only as a powerful monarch and a world leader, but he respected the, the king as a chacham, a wise, sagacious, sagacious man who was proficient in many disciplines. And actually, Rabbi Vadya felt that upon seeing Juan Carlos, he should make two brachas. Certainly the bracha, Shechalak Mikavoidai Labasavadam, which is a bracha you make on a monarch who has the power of life and death. But Rabbi Vadya felt he should make the bracha, Shechalak Mechachmasai Labasavadam. And amazingly, it's recorded in the Sefer, Mishiurei Risha in Litzion, Chelek Aleph, page Beis, Rebavadya Paskind, that he should combine two brachos into one. And upon King, seeing King Juan Carlos, Rebavadya recited the bracha, Baruch Ata Hashem Eloikeinu Melech Oilam Shechalak Mikvaydoi Mechachmasai Labasavadam. And... At this historic meeting, King Juan Carlos asked Rebavadya the following question. Is there a difference in the observance of Torah between Ashkenazim and Sephardim? Rebavadya said, no, there's no difference at all in the fundamentals. Torah achas umishpad echad lekulanu. There are only minor discrepancies in terms of matters of custom, but they're not central to observance. By the way, Rebavadya writes brought in the Sefer Peradar, when we entered the palace, the windows were closed, and surprise, it was hot in Spain. I know you'll have a hard time relating to that, but it was very hot. And my wife, the Rebetzin, was with me, and I noticed, Rebavadya said, how flushed her face was. And the queen was sitting next to the king. She stood up from the chair and opened the windows, and this was the kiyom of the Navi Yeshaya, Perek Kings will be your nursing, your wet nurse, and your princesses. Kings will serve you, and princesses, your wet nurse. King Juan Carlos then expressed his pain and regret for what the Spanish people perpetrated 500 years ago, during the time of the expulsion. And the king related that many Jews went from Spain to Amsterdam. That's where we're headed. And they were accepted with open arms. 
and they were able they were able to produce a Bible. And the king said, I was fortunate to receive a copy of the very first Bible that was published in Amsterdam, which I read from daily, and I enjoy learning from your Torah and your wisdom, and it is filled with deep knowledge and intelligence. The king then turns to Rabbi Vadin and he says, Rabbi, how many Sephardim live in Israel today? And Rabbi Vadin said, Sephardim? That's a very generic term. Svardim includes Egyptians, Jordanians, Iranians, Moroccans, Iraqis, Indian, Yemen. So Svardim includes Jews from the Orient. These are all Svardim. So Rabbi Vadi says the term Svardi includes uh, many, many people, many nationalities, many countries of origin. So the king then turns to Rebavadya and he says, he asks Rebavadya a stunning question. Any serious student of Jewish history should be bothered by this question. Says King Juan Carlos, Frecht King Juan Carlos to Rebavadya, why would a Jew who has no connection to Spain, whose ancestors were never in Spain, why would they call themselves Spaniards? Why would a Jew in Yemen, in Iraq, for more than a thousand years, why would he call himself Sephardi? And Rabbi Vadya gave an answer that I would like to use as the guiding light of this trip. It says, Rabbi Vadya, our nation is not centered around the geographic location. Our country is centered around the Torah. Ein uma senu uma elabat Torah, says Rabbi Sadia Gain. And the greatest sage of Spanish history was the Yelid Cordova, the Rambam, Rabbeinu Rav Moshe ben Maimon, born Shabbos, Erev Pesach, 1135, Niftar on Chav 1204. The Rambam was born in 4895. By the way, it's Haflov Afela. There's a tradition from the Vilna Goyen. There are 5,845 or 5,846 psukim in the Torah, corresponding to the years of the world. Well, the 4,895th Pasuk in the Chumash, the, the Pasuk corresponding to the year of the birth of the Rambam, reads, Be'ever hayardein be'eretz mayav, hayol moishe be'eres ha-Torah the year, uh, the Pasuk corresponding to the year of the birth of the Rambam, says Moshe began to explain the Torah HaKadoshah. Says Rabbi Vadya, you know why Jews from Yemen, from Iraq, from Iran are called Sfardim? Because all of these Jews accept upon themselves the Psak of the greatest Chacham of Sepharad, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon. And therefore it doesn't matter if you come from Morocco, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, India... They're all Spa- Spaniards because they accept the Psak of the Rambam, the greatest sage of Spain. This was very reasonable in the eyes of the king. The king was beaming. He took great pride that the light of the greatest sage of Spain spread throughout the Jewish world. By the way, the king then offered Rabavadia a gift. Later on in history... Rebbe Vadya was having rheumatitis. 
and his wife said, let's bring our mezuzahs to a makubal. So the makubal said, I think there's an avodah in the house. And Rabbi Vadya's wife said, yeah, the cross that King Juan Carlos gave you, we need to get rid of it. And Rabbi Vadya threw the makubal out of the house. He said, you're a charlatan. A cross is not avodah zara. It's mutter to have a cross in your house. A cross is just a symbol that has no stats avodah zara. And Rabbi Vadya exposed this fake makubal based on the fact that the makubal wanted to uncover the cross Rabbi Vadya kept in his house from King Juan Carlos. Rabbi Vadya wrote a tshuva, Yabi O'imer Chilak Zayin, that a cross is not an avodah zara. So any of you who bought magnets that have a cross on it, Rabbi Vadya writes, there's no problem. It will not cause rheumatitis. So the Makubal said, So why do you have rheumatitis? The Ravadi said, Because when I was young, I used to learn all night in a damp basement. That's why I have rheumatitis. Get out of here, you fake, phony uh, charlatan. And Ravadi kicked him out of the house. Anyway, I just thought I would share that with you. And this insight, I want you to carry with you throughout our trip. When you ask a Jew, Where do you come from? We come from... The city of the Chacham who we follow, of the Gedolim that grace the city. From now on, when you think of Cordova, it's important because it's the city of the Rambam. When you think about Barcelona, it's not because it was the location of the 1992 Olympics. It's not because Dream Team won the gold in 1992. Barcelona is significant because it's a city where the Rajba spent more than 40 years being Marbet's Torah, writing more than 10,000 Shuvahs. From now on, when you think of the holy city of Seville, don't think of Seville because of the barber of Seville. Think of Seville because of the Avudraham, or the Ritva, Rabbi Yomtev Ishvili, or of Seville. In Arabic, Ishvili means of Seville. And from now on, when you hear, Holy Toledo! Don't think about the churches in Toledo, Ohio. Don't think about the bars in Toledo, Ohio. You think about Asher Kadishi. You think about the Holy Rush who graced the city of Toledo. When you think about Lucina, you think about the Rif and the Rimagash. And this is a very important lesson. The identity of a Jew is not where you live. It's who are the Chachme Yisrael that you associate with. And this is one of the great lessons of our trip. We're going to go to the city of Amsterdam, where that it was the city where the Ramchal had haven, the Chacham Tzvi, Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, Menashe ben Israel, Rabbi Shol Mortera, Rabbi Arielev of Amsterdam, and many other great sages. And the identity of a Jew is who are the Chachamim you associate with? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.